This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information, the background you need to grow healthier, happier lives. It's not always easy, you know. you got to raise your family. But uh, luckily today is the State of the Union tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate so that. So if you have any television programs you normally watch, yeah. they're probably not going to be on. Yep. Or if they are going to air, they will be probably a repeat because people don't. Repeat. Yes, they will. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So there you go. Makes for a very long show when after everything we say, there's applause. Thank you. Wait till tonight when, what, Obama has a 2,000-word speech, but it goes for four hours because of this. Yes! Yes! Barack Obama's, this is the final, this is, this is the final uh, State of the Union address. Amazing. And, and what I was reading this morning, one of the tactics that the president, yeah, either was the Bushes, the Clintons, you the name Reagan, em. whoever, you stack the audience. Yep, stack them. Yeah. You, you get a lot of people, a lot of people that are for you. Yeah. In fact, uh, who was it? Mrs. Ronald Reagan. O- Mrs. Obama sits next to random people that he that the president will refer to. And- Ronald Reagan was the first president to bring a guest, to have an invited guest that kind of stacks the deck and is definitely an applause line. So let's just let's just give a little shout out to Ronald Reagan. And uh, the Republicans are kind of firing back. Yeah, they're bringing their own guests. Who? The Kentucky clerk. Well, that was a shorter applause. <laughs> are they bringing the clerk? Yeah. Now, where does the where does she sit? I does don't she, know. Do, does she sit oppo- in opposition and opposing I, the president's box? See, seeing that, I think the president would have control over the cameras. Yeah, and they're going to go off of his speech and zoom in where they're not going to go to. They'll have her just standing in the back. It'll be her and her lawyer. <laughs> if you remember, the lawyer has been yeah. key to all this. Yeah, huge. He's the one that uh, leaked that she met with the Pope. Shortest Which, State of the Union. What is it? Word count. So there's two things. They they have to do the speech, and then they have to, like, turn in the document. Shortest, shortest document was George Washington, 1,089 words. Longest document? Who do you think, Ben? Not German. Bill Clinton. No. That was the longest talk. That was the longest speech ever given. Time-wise. Time-wise. It was 44 days. It was a long speech. Actually, uh, Bill Clinton's speech was one hour and 28 minutes and 49 seconds, and he jammed in 9,000 words. The longest report ever turned in, Jimmy Carter's, 33,667 words. 
which is amazing to me. It's because he was a he's a he's a Sunday school teacher. Well, that's great. But they just can't stop. Self edit, man. Edit, man. Hey, um, interesting. First State of the Union. Do you know who it was? Who first person to call it the State of the Union? Who? FDR. Oh, well, they were in the middle of some stuff then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wanted to report. It was broadcast over radio. What they call it before? Um, the really long address that bores many. Okay, and ticks great. off others. <laughs> it was a really long. I, I can't remember. It, I can't see it in here. But it was basically just maybe the, it just didn't have an official. Yeah, it's more of a uh, a line in the Constitution where you show up and it was like a joint party, joint message to Congress. Blah blah. It wasn't until Woodrow Wilson in 1913 that the State of Union. Uh, speeches were restarted. They stopped with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson stopped the practice. So, They'd, like, this is ridiculous. Why are which, we doing this? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So tonight's tonight, folks. This is this is President Obama's final State of the Union, and you know this is where he kind of sets up his legacy, or as the opposing party would say, he rewrites his history. This is the day. No. No. He's going to, as as they've, I've heard some reports are saying, instead of talking about what's ahead for like policy type things, he he's putting forth his vision for the future of the country. Wow, what he thinks is going to happen after he leaves, what he hopes happens, <laughs> hopes and dreams. Well, wouldn't that depend on the person that wins the presidency? Not necessarily. Maybe there should be two visions. He probably has figured out a way to uh, a Trump vision, a Clinton vision. Nah. Or a Bernie Sanders vision. Could be. Or a Ted Theodore Cruz vision. Ted's not going to be there. He's going think? to be in New Hampshire. He has a uh, an event with supporters. Is uh, I think they'll watch the uh, – Mr. Rubio going to be there? Um, I'm not sure. Because they say he's missing everything. I know he was going to skip some uh, top secret briefing and uh, thought it, then decided against it and flew back to D.C. real quick. Hmm. Well, it's a great night. I wouldn't miss it. Now – the entire cabinet will be there. Yeah. Right? That's always fun to watch the Supreme Except Court. For, there's always one member that can't be They there. have to, yeah, put them away somewhere. Just to secure the government vault. in case something happens to everybody at the same time. Oh, wouldn't you hate to be that guy? And that guy's the odd man out, and he just hangs out in an undisclosed location, probably <laughs> under some bunker in West Virginia. It's like the EPA guy. So the, the whole government's destroyed, and then your new president's the head of the EPA. Yeah. That'd be hard. Or what was it on uh, Battlestar Galactic? I think the president was the education secretary. Oh, really? Yeah, and like, you were a school teacher. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh. She's all, kill the Cylons. Sorry. Um, so, by the way, it's, it's just it's just must-see TV tonight. State of the Union. Not quite like last night. Awesome. Is it is it must-see, though? Well, it is for for a few people. There are people who are, like, really addicted to this stuff. They're really intrigued by it. They really – yeah. And then there, how much of the population do you think really well, pays attention? 1%. You know how many people watch the Green Bay Packers play on Sunday? How many? 35 million How many people. watched Alabama-Clemson last night? I haven't seen the numbers yet. That, to me, seems like incredibly successful, this whole college championship series thing. Why? Because finally you do know. You know out of a playoff of four. I mean, sure, a playoff of eight would be better, I think. Or, or as uh, That's pretty incredible. That at, was an incredible the, game. At the same time, you come up with a whole new system, and Alabama still wins. I know. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, until Alabama 
Not that it's broken. <laughs> not that that's somehow wrong, but yeah. They just because they've won three of the last four doesn't mean the system's broken. No. It just I means mean, Alabama is a dominant force that nobody can beat. People are convinced that they would they would go five and four. You know, just go 500 on the year, seven and yeah. seven, and whatever, still win and that. they'd still win the national title. They're just so deep, is what I've found. They're so deep. Oh, Holy yeah. cow! So one guy but, goes down, another guy steps in. Don't lose a, a step at all. And now everyone's saying Saban. What's his first name? Nick. Nick Saban, proving that he is the coach of the millennia. I don't know how what we call him. Eh. He may he may be able to put together a great he, coaching staff. He called a fake punt or a, an onside kick, or he approved after. Yeah, you don't know the story. He probably didn't. Don't call give it. him complete yeah. credit. But he's the head coach, <laughs> and they pulled off the most beautiful onside kick I think I've ever seen. That was great. It was like an alley oop. Yeah. Oh, I wanted Clemson and Davo Sweeney on the the coach of Clemson was going out of his mind. Yeah, Davo like, no Sweeney <laughs> looks like a really great human. They both do. Nick too, but he just keeps winning. Nick Saban. I just, I mean, I don't mind that he keeps getting there. I yeah. just want someone else to win every other year. So okay. I guess it was Alabama's turn. Yeah. What are you gonna do? <sighs> what are you gonna do? Hey, uh, they still have that standoff in Oregon. They do. Okay, good because today we've got a great guest. We did an interview last July. With uh, an expert in um, land resources and environmental law, a professor at the University of Utah, um, Robert Kiter will be joining us. And he's going to talk to us about federal lands, why it's such a big deal. Because did you know 640 million acres of land are owned by the federal government? 47% of 11 western states. So the government owns 11 out of 11 states in the west, 47% of those states. The rest of the uh, the rest of the country, they only own about four percent in the other states. On average, forty-seven percent in eleven western states. So, if you notice, the standoff is in the West, where all yeah, these this ranchers. Is, this isn't in Connecticut. No, this no. isn't in yeah Connecticut. <laughs> this isn't in Philly. This isn't in this is in Oregon, because these ranchers are tired of the federal government telling them how to run their land. So this great professor, Dr. Robert Kiter, is going to share with us or in the case in what's Oregon, really going on. They, uh, the ranchers feel like they have taken too much land. Yeah. And, and then change the rules on who can graze on right. federal and land. And where you can use, can. what road you can use to access your properties and, it's, and it's, grazing it's rights. It's bonkers to walk into a federal building like they're in yeah. and just take guns and have some sort of armed standoff. That's crazy. Thing. But their reasons for doing it, they have some arguments. Yeah. And, and, he, and our guest coming up gets into some of that. And after this interview, when we aired it in uh, July, after it, I was like, wow, they actually do, may do – they may have a yeah. point. They may I, you know, yeah, kind of change I didn't realize. Mind. I showed you – there was a map. I, I'll put it up on Twitter yeah. um, that shows just how drastic the amount of land owned in the west versus the east of the country is well, by the federal government. And honestly – the government could turn over all the land, but many of the states couldn't afford to no. handle all the land, and yet. So I, I think this is kind of complicated. A, the argument is they're overreaching. Yeah, they should ask for what they need and not ask for all of it. Right, if you ask for it all, there's no way they're. But they may give you some. But the interesting thing is, it would be better probably that the state of Oregon be dealing with these people in Oregon. Yeah, and Utah deal with the Utah ranchers. Let ever let the states Nevada, deal yeah. with them instead of the government. The government, the federal government that's back east that doesn't understand the land issue or doesn't seem to understand the land issue. So we'll be uh, playing that interview in just a few minutes. 
But before we do that, let's get to the headlines. Anything else going on around the world? There is. Thanks, Matt. As we've been talking about President Obama's State of the Union address is tonight. The president put out a preview video, a teaser, if you will, to give us an idea of what we can expect. I'm working on my State of the Union address. It's my last one. And as I'm writing, I keep thinking about the road that we've traveled together these past seven years. The people I've met, the stories that you've shared, the remarkable things you've done to make change happen, to recover from crisis, and set this country on a better, stronger course for tomorrow. You said the Oval Office. Oh, is that the Oval Office? It sounded like a restroom. It's really echoey. I think they did it on a phone. It's kind of, Okay. That's cool. But again, a teaser. Very few presidents send out a personal teaser. So State of the Union begins at 9 p.m. Eastern. Check your DVRs to see what it's messing up. Uh, Just three weeks until Iowa, the days grow shorter, the polls grow tighter. Donald Trump has a three-point lead over Ted Cruz, but that's within the polls' margin of error. A new poll shows Trump with a commanding lead in New Hampshire with John Kasich, Marco Rubio, and Cruz in a virtual tie for second. The NBC Marist poll shows uh, Bernie Sanders coming on fast in Iowa and even outperforming Clinton in the general election. In a theoretical matchup with Donald Trump, Sanders leads Iowa by 13 points Mm. and leads Clinton by 8 So, theoretical, who cares, but, you know, interesting. After Fox Business announced Rand Paul didn't qualify for the primetime Republican presidential debate on Thursday, the senator from Kentucky rebuffed an invitation to attend the earlier debate. Instead, Paul told the Washington Post he plans to take the debate to Iowa and New Hampshire. The undercard debate doesn't have as many viewers as the primetime one, and Paul said he thinks the network has made a mistake. Hmm. I'm not willing to accept a designation as a minor campaign. We've raised $25 We've gotten on the ballot on every state. It's kind of ridiculous to arbitrary to uh, to rate the campaigns based on national polling. Wow. I hope he doesn't go take over a refuge. He could. In Iowa. <laughs> or maybe in Kentucky. Who knows? Yeah. David Bowie's music, both old and new, shot up the charts after his death on Sunday night. Bowie's newly released album, Black Star, briefly hit number one on iTunes. And the best of Bowie also rocketed up to the top 10 of albums on Monday. Fans around the world erected memorials almost instantly. Flowers and candles were placed near a mural in London and outside of uh, Bowie's old apartment in Berlin, where he recorded his album Heroes. Carnegie Hall announced a tribute concert is already in the works. Hmm. Ground control to Major Tom. More remembrances there. And as we talked about, Alabama beats Clemson 45-40. to That was a great game. And a thrilling game that I turned off with a minute left because there was no way they were going to score that many oh. points. And they, well, they came within five. Yeah. Looks like I went to bed oh, oh, oh. something. Um, so, yeah, Alabama wins again. Okay. Well, they did it again. And, again, get excited. It's not the national championship game tonight. It is the State of the Union. Yay. I, I – I do love the ceremony of whoever, whatever the guy is, but he like calls out the name, Mister Speaker. <laughs> yeah, I do too. This is the you know the and, president, and they do the they do that States. with ambassadors and anyone oh, that comes yeah. in to speak to Congress, and they just have this huge ceremony when they oh, come. I in, think so. that's way cool. That's yeah. this is where you can even if you don't like the politics, that's pretty cool. And this is a majorly historic president's final State of the Union. It's still part of Americana. Come on. You don't have to hate it. Anybody? Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the delay of applause. Hey, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into this this uh, federal land topic. You know, it's it's sparked uh, a major um, 
uh, what do you want to call it, standoff, I guess, from those uh, the Bundy clan. They are actually called the Citizens for Constitutional Freedom. And they're fighting to get uh, the federal government off of state lands, and the federal government owns a lot of those lands. So Dr. Robert Keiter will be uh, be joining us, actually doing and will be playing his interview that we did back in July. Fascinating interview about uh, state lands versus local rights and responsibilities over the properties and the lands of the federal government. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff. Trying to help you understand better what's going on in Oregon and or actually in the rest of the country. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. So, again, would you believe that the federal government owns 640 million acres of land? That sums up about 28% of the nation, of our the land in our country, owned by the federal government. But more shockingly is how much federal ownership uh, exists in the western states versus the rest of the nation. The federal government owns 47% of 11 western states, while only owning 4% in other states. Right Among those 11 western states whose land is primarily owned by the federal government, Utah has been battling to reclaim what they believe has been theirs from the beginning. And every state is going about uh, trying to have some battle or some – they want to grab or gather back more of their own um, state land, much like was happening in the rest of the country, which is really probably the cause uh, or at least some of the cause of the standoff in Oregon – where the Citizens for Constitutional Freedom went in and took over a refuge, a government-owned building. And um, anyway, we wanted to give you some background so that when you when you hear about what's going on with federal lands, you're a little bit more informed. We went back to the archives, found this interview with Dr. Robert Keiter on federal land. Dr. Keiter is a professor at the University of Utah in uh, natural resources. He teaches classes in constitutional law, administrative law, and federal courts. And he is uh, he has a great interview that we're going to start right now. Now, the first question I open up with is very simply this. Why is there such a disparity of land owned by the federal government in the western states versus the rest of the country? The basic uh, reason why there's such a difference uh, is uh, uh, geographical. Uh, and uh, that's primarily because uh, so much of the west, uh, first of all, is uh, at a relatively high elevation uh, where agriculture is not uh, uh, that easily pursued mm. uh, as it was uh, further east, that is east of the 100th meridian, as most uh, historians would uh, assert. Uh, and then secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, the, es- the west is uh, quite arid in comparison yeah. to the eastern part of the uh, country. I'm- and uh, as a result, uh, there's just not that much water uh, out here, uh, certainly during the homesteading era. Uh, for uh, folks to uh, uh, pursue uh, agriculture. And that makes sense because, like, you look at the state of Nevada, 85% roughly of Nevada is is federal land. And if you've ever driven through Nevada, it makes sense. It makes sense because nobody would want it except aren't there mineral rights? The whole the whole shakedown of the whole weird Clive Bundy moment where he just wanted to go graze his animals on federal land or whatever. I don't know. There's it, – it's, it's a – there's nothing there except there's some stuff there. 
Well, uh, you're correct in the sense that there are uh, minerals uh, under some of the uh, lands here in the West, uh, some of the federal lands and also some of the private lands. Uh, Probably the most important historical fact to be aware of uh, regarding the minerals is that uh, while the federal government was disposing uh, of its lands through homesteading laws uh, uh, beginning uh, back uh, actually in the early 1800s, principal homestead law came in during the Civil War, that uh, during that time the federal government did not uh, ordinarily uh, transfer uh, mineral rights uh, where uh, minerals were known uh, to uh, either private individuals or to the new states uh, as they were uh, coming oh. aboard. In other yeah. words, the federal government tended to retain mineral rights. Is So talk to us about that, because a lot of states now, in fact, two Utah senators are now fighting to try to get the land, the the states to take over the federal lands. Um, uh, Congressman Bishop, Congressman Stewart have put uh, are launching a federal land action group and I guess the idea is we want our land back, but isn't it true that we signed, you know, when, when we became, when we entered into the union, we, there were certain statutes that we agreed to, which basically meant the federal government would keep a majority of that land. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, you're correct. And uh, let me step back uh, uh, before Utah went into the union. Yeah. Uh, and that is that the, the lands uh, originally uh, – uh, were acquired by the federal government uh, through uh, treaties with foreign uh, countries, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in the case of Utah. Uh, so the federal lands uh, were never these lands that are now and have been from the beginning uh, federal lands uh, were never actually uh, under state ownership. So the idea that the states are taking back something that uh. was theirs to begin with uh, is not an accurate characterization. Yeah. Uh, there were slightly different historical circumstances in the East, uh, but that's uh, that was an earlier era. Um, in terms of the uh, claims uh, that the state uh, uh, of Utah uh, has made recently to the federal lands, uh, they emerge from what's known as the Utah Statehood Act, uh, or a State Enabling Act, uh, which was adopted by Congress uh, to admit Utah into the Union. Uh, It followed a pattern uh, that had already been established with the earlier admitted states, um, adopted in 1897, um, and uh, it's some provisions in that act uh, that uh, uh, the proponents of uh, uh, transferring these lands back to the state have uh, seized upon. Do do talk to me as a as an expert in this. Does the why does the federal government want the land now? Why wouldn't I mean if if the rest of the country is doing pretty well with their own land, why why wouldn't the federal government want to just turn the land back over to the states that want it and can afford to take care of it? Why would the why would the feds want to be involved in owning that land? Well, uh, yeah, ultimately, it's a political question uh, as to who owns the lands. Um, at the beginning, uh, the um, federal government did make the lands available for uh, disposal, uh, first of all, to states upon admission. Uh, and uh, Utah actually received uh, approximately 7.5 uh, million acres uh, when it was admitted uh, to statehood, uh, the 
bulk of these lands are now what we regard as the state school trust land. Right. Um, in addition to that, the uh, federal government made lands available for homestead settlement. Uh, some of those lands were claimed uh, principally near water uh, because then uh, agriculture was possible. But uh, the vast majority, uh, roughly two-thirds of the lands uh, in the state of Utah uh, went unclaimed. Uh, and uh, the federal government uh, uh, ultimately, uh, in 1976, uh, formally uh, decided uh, when Congress adopted the Federal Land Policy and Management Act uh, to continue to retain those lands in federal ownership uh, because uh, there simply wasn't much disposal activity going on, uh, and it was believed uh, at the national level that uh, the federal government uh, should uh, engage in uh, active management of those lands under a multiple-use principle. Hmm. I mean, it's such an interesting thing when you um, – because the West kind of gets an interesting reputation that guns – um, big into property rights, water, hello, uh, big, big water battles, kind of grazing, ranching, you know, industry like that. Um, but property matters and it, it almost, I guess it just matters a lot. And so I wonder if it doesn't keep a lot of the Westerners in a, in a weird position toward the federal government, you know, kind of as a, they're, they're in opposition to the government. Uh, well, there, there has uh, long been a history of a federal-state uh, conflict over uh, federal lands and federal management of these lands. Uh, if we go back to uh, the turn of the uh, – or the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, the uh, Congress authorized the president to create forest reserves. Uh, the presidents uh, did uh, what are now known as our national forests. Uh, the Western states uh, uh, fought uh, the creation of those uh, national forests and, among other things, asserted that the states uh, had to have a say in uh, the federal government's decision to reserve these lands and to manage them as uh, national forests. And the Supreme Court uh, ultimately said uh, in a couple of decisions in 1910 that uh, it was up to Congress uh, under uh, the property clause to decide uh, whether or not to retain these lands in federal ownership or to um, uh, convey them into private ownership or to do something else with them. Yeah. Uh, so the, the states basically lost uh, that series of cases, uh, establishing a, a principle of uh, broad federal authority over uh, these federal lands. Interesting. And, you know, when, when we have a good, you know, a good fire that spreads thousands of acres, yeah, that's when we kind of like the feds coming in, <laughs> put out that bad boy. Let's take a break. We're talking with Robert Keiter, who uh, is a, a distinguished professor at the University of Utah, uh, director of the Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources and Environment. He's a law professor and an expert in natural resources. We're just picking his brain, trying to figure out about, uh, you know, the land ownership, federal land versus state. The states, a lot of them are starting to complain. They want some of their land back. They, they want it to be, you know, a little bit more proportionate, maybe. But, man, they've got an uphill climb. We'll take a break more with Robert Keiter after the break.
Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, that's some good tunage. You guys are going out of your way to get some good sounds. This land is your land, folks. Either way, whether it's in your state or in your federal government, you own it. Come on, you pay your taxes. Right? Well, there's a movement of that's going on that people are wanting, uh, some of the states want their land back. Utah, I mean, I mean, these are states that 50-ish percent of their land is owned by the federal government. When you look at the West, it's a big deal for a lot of the people in the West. And so we're trying to talk about uh, what's really going on with this argument and, and does it really matter. So we wanted to bring in an expert that we think could sort it through for us. Uh, Robert Keiter is joining us. He is, again, the director of the Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources, and Environment, a law professor at the University of Utah and an expert in natural resource law. He's been cited in a, um, in a few articles that, to, that are kind of giving us insight into some of the potential lawsuits that they might be undertaking or the states, some of the states might be undertaking to get their land back. So we appreciate you being here again, Robert. Thanks for uh, your time. Thank you. When when we talk about this, um, I mean, it's I mean, there's precedence, there's history, there's already be, been kind of a principle set, I guess, legally for these states being able to go back and 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 take their land back. But there there seemed to be a real practical example of why we might want to give more responsibility back to the states during the government shutdown. Uh, I think it was in in 2013. The government shuts down. As part of that, they shut down the parks all around the country. Some of the parks in the state of Utah, they want the, Utah, the state of Utah wanted to keep those parks open because of the industry of it. They were making money. There's a lot of visitors. There's a lot of travel. And the feds were shutting it down. So the state of Utah said, let us run it. They ran it and were able to keep you know the cities and the towns around some of these federally owned places running and moving. Um, what do you think, Robert? Is it is it crazy to think that it it might be better managed locally than nationally on a national level? Well, uh, let me speak first to the shutdown. Yeah, uh, the state of Utah did uh, make an arrangement with the National Park Service to reopen the parks, but uh, it did so by uh, uh, providing funds uh, for the Park Service to actually open and manage the parks uh, rather than the state. Right. Uh, your other point, though, about uh, who's better able to manage uh, the lands uh, is uh, a constant point of conflict between uh, the federal governments and uh, the federal government and the state uh, governments. Uh, there are uh, regular allegations of uh, mismanagement, too much uh, bureaucraties, um, uh, too much uh, uh, environmental analysis. Uh, uh, the, uh, different priorities, that sort of thing, uh, that uh, regularly surface in these uh, arguments. Uh, basically, I think at, at, at one level, he, he, this is a federalism question: mm-hmm. uh, whether the lands are better managed, lands are better managed under standards that are set at a national level or uh, at a local level, uh, and uh, who has uh, uh, greater knowledge uh, and greater ability to manage. The uh, realities, I think, in terms of how the federal lands end up being managed is that Congress sets pretty general standards, multiple use, sustained yield for national forests, and 
BLM lands and gives a, a pretty large amount of discretion to uh, the local federal land mm. managers to uh, sort out how that plays out uh, on the ground. Um, the states assert that uh, they'd be more efficient uh, managing the lands, uh, that they derive greater revenues from uh, the lands than the federal government currently does. Uh, that probably turns on exactly how the states uh, uh, and the state of Utah in particular uh, would proceed to manage uh, lands if it uh, uh, owned them. Mm. And uh, at this point, uh, with the uh, legislation that's on the books, uh, we don't know exactly how uh, the state of Utah would manage the lands if it were to reacquire them, or to acquire them, I should put it that way. Um, the state currently manages at school trust lands under an obligation to maximize revenue. Yeah. Uh, that is to promote uh, uh, mineral development and uh, other money-making activities. And they do that for the schools, right? So they use that, that land correct. to generate money through mineral rights, whatever other rights, and then... That money goes to the kids. That is correct, and that has been one of the strongest, uh, uh, I think, uh, political arguments that the state has made uh, this time around in, uh, uh, as this matter has heated up. Uh, in contrast, under a multiple-use regime, uh, commodity production, mineral development, that sort of thing, uh, is one of several different uses that the federal government, uh, federal land managers consider uh, in deciding how to uh, proceed with management. Uh, mm. The other, I think, important point on the federal side uh, on this is that over time, uh, the federal government, I, th I think it's fair to say, uh, has uh, uh, moved away from a pretty heavy emphasis on uh, commodity production on its uh, uh, multiple-use lands uh, and toward uh, uh, more concern for uh, environmental values, amenity values, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so that in turn plays into some of the frustration of the state. Yeah. And then you just look at, I don't know, I mean, I, I look at it kind of administratively. I think of the federal government um, as, as, this, as, a, as a pretty big monstrosity. And then when you think of the 600 and whatever million acres that it needs to run, it's got four federal agencies. The United States Forest Service runs about 193 million acres, which about the size of Turkey. The National Park Service uh, is over about, uh, uh, about 80 million acres, the size of Norway. The Bureau of Land Management, 248 million acres, about the size of Egypt. Fish and Wildlife Services, 89 million acres, about the size of Germany, uh, and um, I, and the agricultural department. So you sit there and you think there's five departments that exist for the management of this, and yet, so the money the money must be extraordinary, and the bureaucracy, and I don't know. It just seems like it's a lot, and yet there's this lawsuit, not the lawsuit, but there's this this movement going forward for the states to get their rights to get this property back. Where do you think that's going to go, Robert? In the end, is there is is there going to be a change? Is there going to be a political decision to this that? might be able to change the legal precedents. Is there any shot of the land being given back or not given back, but, you know, reassigned? Right. Um, it, well, at, at this point, uh, Utah uh, is the only state that has indicated that it's prepared to mount a lawsuit against the federal government uh, based upon uh, claims under the Utah's uh, Statehood Act. Uh, the uh, uh, Several other Western states have 
basically endorsed the idea of uh, transfer of the lands to the states, uh, but have not indicated they're going to sue. The legal claim that Utah has is a very difficult one, in my judgment, yeah. uh, given uh, all of the language in the Statehood uh, Enabling Act, particularly a couple of what are known as disclaimer clauses that say that the state hereby disclaims any interest uh, or ownership yeah. claims to these lands. So uh, I think the legal argument is uh, very difficult. Uh, it does, though, set up uh, a political dynamic, uh, and I think uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of our state representatives uh, filing uh, mm-hmm. or, or contemplating legislation. And uh, it's probably more likely that uh, this issue will play out there. The big question that I have in my mind uh, on that is why would uh, Congress, uh, which is composed of representatives from across the country, right. um, give up uh, the, uh, uh, this asset, uh, that is the federal lands, uh, that it, particularly in terms of mineral uh, royalties and revenues uh, produce a substantial chunk of the uh, federal treasury, and that doesn't even account for, you know, some things like uh, wilderness and parks and uh, right. wildlife that uh, people in other parts of the country value. See, that, so you're thinking it's you know there's you're giving up big assets, even though some of these are just you know dust fields and dirt fields, but they're giving up a lot of mineral rights. They'd give up a lot of money. So why would the other 40, whatever, or 38 states, whatever, do that? Right. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and the other thing I think to keep in mind uh, from a historical perspective is that we've we've sort of seen this uh, uh, issue arise uh, now for a third time in the last, uh, oh, a little over a quarter century, almost a half century. Uh, first with the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 1970s uh, that eventually fizzled, uh, where the states asserted an ownership claim to the lands, uh, what was known as the county supremacy movement in the 1990s, uh, where the states asserted that uh, and counties that they had the right to control the lands. Uh, and now, in a somewhat different guise, uh, the claim is being made under the uh, state enabling acts uh, that the federal government is obligated to uh, dispose of uh, or return these lands to the states. Um, uh, As the politics uh, wax and wane at the national level, uh, these issues seem to wax and wane at the national level. Well, and then it just, there's just this weird echo. One of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I don't think most of the listeners nationwide knew of this disparity. I mean, I think that I don't think many people understand that 0.8 percent of New York and point and 85 percent of uh, Nevada are owned by the federal government. Okay. They probably didn't know that disparity. But right. that, then there's this weird idea in my head that so you know some of the Western states already feel like they're beholden to the federal government in a lot of land use or rights to get into access in on certain federal land and stuff. But then there's the the moment where the president. Uh, past or present, decides to make a national monument and, um, you know, by mandate, by fiat or whatever, and and they go create like a, a national monument and then all of a sudden usurp more property or take more property or, or make something a national park that now really destroys mineral access to mineral rights or access to roads to mineral rights. And that happened in Utah with President Clinton years ago. I mean, 
so then that creates other issues, right? Because just by mandate, basically, by presidential signature, we can also do stuff with this land that obligates the state. That is correct. Although, uh, uh, in the, but the president's authority to create a national monument was granted to him specifically by Congress under what's known as the Antiquities Act. Uh, so Congress having granted, it can always uh, take away that authority. Okay. There's been legislation to try to do that. Uh, it hasn't succeeded uh, over the years. Also worth noting that uh, in Utah we have five major national parks. Uh, four of those five parks uh, were created with acrimony uh, mm. by uh, presidents under the Antiquities <laughs> Act, they? and they're now important uh, elements of Utah's economy. Yeah, now and then they create a boon, don't they? So, yes. and, and and it's interesting because you can almost—it almost seems like with President Clinton, it was something he held on to almost till the end of his presidency to do stuff like that. And, and I don't know, there just seems to be a vibe in the air that President Obama might be gearing up for some of that. So, And it's interesting, too, because when you look at the disparity, um, a lot of the Western states are uh, Republican uh, or kind of more conservative. Um, and yet, I don't know. So it just seems like it sets up those little weird – and Cliven Bundy is not a good example at all because it just was just a train wreck. Um, but in the future, so you basically say it's going to be an uphill battle short of legislative uh, strategizing. There's not probably going to be much of a move here, and it's just going to be we'll just keep bringing up this battle about every 20 years. Uh, that would not surprise me in terms of how this plays out. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, these are public lands. Uh, Congress has the authority under the Constitution over them, under the property clause which means uh, that there's a political element uh, in the decision as to uh, how to manage them, what priorities prevail, uh, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I, again, and again, because they're public lands and federal lands, uh, you are, we're all members of the great USA, so it's ours as well. <laughs> uh, true enough. And one of the things that has happened over the years is that Congress has given uh, the public uh, a greater role in to say over how these lands uh, are managed through planning laws and uh, the National Environmental Policy Act and similar laws. And it, yeah, and I don't you think it's beautiful? Like, because when, when you really, when you, there, it's one thing to be fighting for it in Congress. It's another thing to be in the small towns around these these beautiful, incredible parks, and just see the true love of the park in the in those people. So it, I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing where. We make these decisions in, in Washington, but it's so in the hearts of the people that live there, that breathe there, and that, and that run those parks. Well, I, you've hit on, a, I think, an important point, and uh, it seems to me that that's potentially a, a sort of a common point uh, that uh, we all might come around. Uh, that is a shared uh, sense of place. Uh, for uh, many of these uh, lands and the sort of uh, unique uh, uh, landscapes and resources that they present. And uh, that gives me some hope that uh, we, we can move forward by uh, sitting down and uh, uh, collaboratively trying to work out uh, how best uh, to proceed, uh, taking into account uh, both uh, national interests uh, in uh, resources and uh, local interests and concerns. No, I totally agree. And and somehow I think we just need to get a real big bus ride 
from D.C. with all of the congressmen and women and take them across country and let them just experience all of these parks to see what's really going on because it's it is it actually would be I think I think it would be life changing and uh, policy changing to just see what's really happening on the ground. Well, I, I would certainly be educational for those who haven't been out here in the wide open spaces of the West. I'd love them to see the Grand Canyon. Indeed. Don't you think? Yes. Well, Robert, we appreciate you, and uh, keep up the great work in fighting for the lands. Uh, Robert Keiter, again, director of Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources, and Environment, a law professor at the University of Utah, and expert in natural resource law. We are going to take a break, my friends. Uh, come back to a coach's corner. Just about, you know, the responsibility, your stewardship of land and of life and of, you know, it's one thing to go all green. It's another thing to just care, for heaven's sakes, about uh, the fact that you have a, a great country that affords you the opportunity to go to state parks, to, to have clean water to recreate in. We'll take a break, my friends. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, so there you have it. There you have it. It's just that simple. I mean, it's complicated, right? Federal government has the property. And uh, with our good friends up in Oregon, they're tired of it. That's one of the things you're noticing in this political uh, environment is people are just tired of not having a voice. At some point, um, we need to have our voice be heard, and it doesn't, you know. And if it's not heard, then let's just go in there and we'll take it over, and you'll hear it by force. You know, that's probably not the best way to to have your voice be heard um, by revolution. However, think about it um, to all of us, and it doesn't matter where you are. Are you good at helping people share their voice? Do you tend to shut them down? And I think that's one of the problems with bureaucracy is we don't have to treat people, you know, as humans with a voice. We have a great guest coming up next hour. Um, One of our favorite uh, parenting experts is Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who's a Ph.D. at Yale and a psychiatrist um, over clinical uh, clinical professionals. Um, who practice clinical psychiatry. But one of the things that he's going to be talking about is the the fact of – it's called face, saving face. You've heard of that, right? Um, a lot of times in Asian cultures, you'll hear of saving face. But one of the things he talks about with children, and I think the same thing applies to all of us, is we have to recognize and preserve – Um, The concept of face. Face is simply this. It means recognizing and preserving with a child, a child's dignity and integrity as a person. They're a person of value. They have feelings. They are sensitive and they remember experiences. We have to start seeing every human being on this great big ball of mud as somebody that's got dignity, that they have integrity, that they have values and feelings and they're sensitive and they remember so imagine if every single person that came into the DMV was treated and seen as somebody who who 
has face. They have dignity. They have worth. They have integrity. They have feelings, and they're going to remember. And I think sometimes when we get into bureaucracies, we stop seeing that these are real human beings. We stop treating people like they're humans, and instead we treat them like they're numbers. We see that in our court system. We see that in our judicial system. How many times this last – in 2015 did we see stories of police officers not necessarily treating people as humans who have face? But instead we have to kind of demonize and then we end up treating police officers as people who are demons without face. In some way, if we want to actually have some progress, we have to remember the human side of all of this and – People are real and they, they, they have inherent dignity just because they're a human. They have inher- inherent value just simply because they're a human being. Some would say just simply because they're a child of God, right? They are sensitive. They have feelings. They have experiences. They have a memory. So if we're going to try to move the world by legislation – if you're going – make sure you're remembering all of the humanity because if not, people are going to push back on your legislation. If the courts are going to decide certain things, that's fine. Make it a law except if it demeans the human face, if it demeans my dignity, my integrity, my value as a human being, I'm going to end up fighting against it. And so maybe what we see going on in Oregon, it's, it's not justified – It's just a backlash of people that don't feel like their voice is being heard. And that's with all of us. All of us need to be better at this. And especially as parents, we need to make sure our children know that we understand that they are a living human being that has dignity and we need to treat them as such. That's what we'll talk about next hour with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Um, Powerful stuff about parenting as well. And uh, let's just use it now with our government and with one another. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Ah, Getting ready for the State of the Union. Yeah, going to get my comfy chair, my lazy boy already, get my popcorn. Eh, actually I'm not. I've got a class tonight. I'm teaching a class. I figure that would be more fun than listening to the State of the Union. But again, it is your president and your president's final State of the Union. So get ready for that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm making people happy. I'm the magical man from Happy Land in a gumdrop house at Lollipop Lane. A little preview of the upcoming State of the Union. Have you explained that that applause is actually from a recording of the State of the Union? I haven't. That is an actual recording. That is elected officials applauding. 
other elected officials. Thank you. Thank you. Some appointed, not all elected. No. And it goes on for, for like two hours. Except for the people in black robes who barely move. That's always fun to watch them. Well, unless you're, what, Justice Roberts a few years ago? Yeah. Liar! Or that's wrong, or however yeah. he called out what President Did Obama he do was that? Saying. Yeah, I think it was. Was it him? Oh, that was a congressman. No, no, no. It was a justice because it was about I, campaign finance I think, reform. I think, I think he was shaking his head or something. No, the, the, he verbally he said something. Out? He yelled something out. The, spe- the, the, the chief, chief justice, justice yelled I, something I, out I, during the now, State of the now Union? Now I have to look it up. That sounds like... It had to do when... Uh, People and speech became money and all that stuff. Man, because that's that's how you're going to, you know, you don't mess with the president in the State of the Union, even if you are the chief justice. Hey, uh, while you're looking that up, um, did you hear about this $1 million accident? This was, ah, geez. A November uh, accident has cost a U.S. submarine commander his job and taxpayers at least $1 million. The USS Georgia, an Ohio-class guided missile submarine, struck a channel buoy and grounded and uh, grounded as it was returning to port in Kings Bay, Georgia. Ran into a buoy. Oops. Ugh. Did you guys hear something? Check your blind spots. Blink. <laughs> Did you <guys> hear something? <laughs> oh, can you imagine just that feeling when you're in a car accident anyway and your gut just sinks? Oh man. And this guy, it's a million-dollar accident. You're like, what did I just do? Well, when it's a submarine, yeah. Hey, uh, Jimmy, come here and look at this. Does this uh, sub look smashed to you? Did you did you do something while you were out with the sub? I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I have no idea how that got there. How did that huge dent get it right there? The paint doesn't match. I have no idea, Dad. I just went, I just went to the store and came home. <laughs> Jimmy, did you crash the sub? Uh, submarine, apparently, Randy Kreitz, though, commander of Submarine Group 10 at Naval Submarine Base at Kings Bay. He was the he was the guy. Commanding officers are held to the highest standards of professional conduct and accept the responsibility of command with full regard for its consequences, he said in a statement. <sighs> it's good that they're not allowed to run into things. Well, yeah. They have some volatile substances. But it wasn't even a nuclear sub. What is the big deal? It's just a sub. They have standards. My mom, when I crashed her car and brought it home like in pieces, she said, accidents happen, Matt. But the rear admiral didn't say that to Randy Kreitz. Happened to me. First thing my father said, are you okay? Yeah. And I went, oh, yeah, I'm good. And he goes, great. What'd you do to the car? You owe me big time. (laughs) Once I was fine, then it was on. Oh, can you imagine? Back to the justice openly disagreeing with President Obama. 2010, State of the Union, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito didn't like hearing President Barack Obama publicly criticize the high court's ruling removing corporate campaign spending limits. And uh, he didn't try to hide it. Alito made a dismissive face, shook his head repeatedly, and appeared to mouth the words not true or possibly simply not true when Obama assailed the decision Wednesday night in his State of the Union address. So he didn't verbally say it, but he appeared. Yeah. But then there was the other guy that did yell out, liar. That was a a representative. That was a representative that yelled out. Wow. Yeah. So let's just have some decorum for crying out loud. He's the president of the United States. This is his meeting. And – He's been historic. This was a big. This is a big deal. This is his final hurrah 
So, thank you, thank you. Boy, that's a long meeting though. When they do that every five minutes, Ugh. that's why I'm not watching. I, I, you know, not that I am against it, but I'm not watching. I apparently the you lie comment came from uh, Representative Joe Wilson. Joe Wilson. He represents South Carolina's second district, or you, used to. You lie. Yeah. Let's just let's just remember we're one country. Yeah. And it could be worse. You could have just crashed a million dollar or submarine and caused a million dollars in damage. Hmm. Now, guess what? That was over. What? Republican yelling out at the president. Well, I, I'm going to bet. Uh, I'm going to bet um, his health care initiative. Yes, that was in 2011. GOP Representative Joe Wilson apologized for yelling out "you lie" to Obama during his health care speech in front of Congress. That wasn't the same guy that steals the glasses after the president talks. No, that was a talk. different guy. That okay. was a different guy. <laughs> this is our Congress. Well, that's interesting. We've got. Isn't it great? Because they're representative of all of us. So, you know, you've got the one that yells out, you lie. That's representative of somebody. You've got the guy that steals the cup from the pope and the president. And then, like, passes it around and has his family all drink out of it. Yeah. They're all drinking pope wash. <laughs> you. I think it's <laughs> it's not called pope wash. It could be. No. It's, it's just his, his excellency's drink. I understand. It just seems kind of, you know, usually you're not going to go drink out of somebody else's cup. No, no. I tried. Really? Yeah. Ew. It was weird. But it was Ben. Oh. And I'm like, and he didn't, I just took it. I started drinking it. All right. I'm like, are you offended that I drank out of your cup? And he's like, that's not my cup. <laughs> it's so rude. He let me drink out of someone else's cup. Yeah, you pretty much took it from Don, so. Was that Don's cup? Yeah. Oh, well. We're close here at BYU Broadcasting. So there's some State of the Union uh, events that happened recently, hmm. like in the last decade. Plus, just the justices sit there, and they always look tired. They look sleepy, a little worn out. Um, anyway, let's do this first. Let's get to the headlines, and then we'll figure that out. Let's get to the headlines. Terry, anything going on around the rest of the world? There is. Thanks, Matt. President Barack Obama's final State of the Union address will unmistakably attempt to frame the choice facing Americans as they select his successor, doling out an optimistic vision of the country's future in contrast with what he sees as the pessimism that that is pervasive in the Republican primary. Obama won't directly appeal for Americans to keep the Democratic Party in the White House for a third straight term, and he won't endorse a specific candidate in the 2016 race, but he will outline domestic and international priorities that build on steps he's taken during his two terms in office, a vision certain to be more in line with Hillary Clinton than the other than other Democrats than uh, and the other Democrats than the GOP presidential candidates. So he's going to look at his policies and hope for them to continue in the future hmm. and not endorse anybody specifically. The FBI has expanded its investigation into Hillary Clinton's private emails to look for evidence of public corruption. Unnamed intelligence officials told Fox News the agents are investigating the possible intersection of Clinton Foundation donations, the di- the, the uh, dispensation of State Department uh, or the the awarding of State Department contracts, and whether regular processes were followed. Ooh, 
One anonymous source tells Fox News ties between the State Department under Clinton and the Clinton Foundation have previously been reported, but so far have not found evidence that donors improperly benefited from Clinton's position as Secretary of State. So people associated with the Clinton Foundation, did they get government contracts? And if they did, was there a process? Was it followed correctly? Or did they get a favor from someone they knew, the Secretary of State? By the way, with her and the emails, it's you know it's kind of heating up a bit. But yes. mainly with the intelligence community. Yes. They're not liking how loose she played with some of those things. And apparently you don't mess with the intelligence people. No. They know they, the secrets. They have their ways. They know the secrets. A Donald Trump supporter was hoping for jokes when he showed up at a rally in uh, New Hampshire on Monday. He was disappointed as Trump talked about creating free zones in Syria. The heckler interrupted. Make it possible for people to live until they can hopefully someday go back to their homes. Boring! Boring! Nothing funny about this. You don't even jokes. There you wow. go. This is boring. <laughs> this is boring. Uh. The, the man was not immediately identified, but apparently stressed that he's on Trump's side. He goes, I love Donald Trump, but it's getting a little boring, the man said. Supporter or not, he didn't last long in the rally. Get him out, Trump commanded after being interrupted by this gentleman. Wow. In other news, all five paid New Hampshire staffers at the Ben Carson 2016 Committee Headquarters, a super PAC supporting the retired neurosurgeon Republican presidential bid, have quit to volunteer for Ted Cruz. Wow. According to reports from uh, WMUR, a local media outlet. We We hold Dr. Carson in the highest regard. Says one of the staffers, this is a man we revere, but we think it is important that our party nominate a conservative and get behind a single conservative who can win. And we strongly believe that candidate is Ted Cruz. The super PAC is operated independently of Carson's campaign, which recently lost its manager and communications director. Hmm. So there goes the super PAC money. I don't know about the money, but they lost their staff and organizing ability and people trying to you know, get people excited about Ben Carson. Who are now trying to get people excited about Ted Cruz. Theodore Cruz. Uh, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus will retire all 11 of its touring elephants in May, a year and a half before they were planned to leave the entertainment productions. The Associated Press reports that all of the elephants will be sent to a 100-acre center in Florida oh, for nice. permanent retirement. The plan was moved up by 18 months because enclosures and spaces did not take as long as expected to build. How will they put up the big top? With cranes or something, not you know the. <laughs> Most of them are using stadiums now. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. that's good for the. I mean, if you're going to retire as an elephant, where better to do it than a Florida rest home? Seriously, that's to run nice. around and play. Okay. Good news. See, folks, life is safe. The elephants no longer have to work. The big top doesn't need to be hoisted anymore. Ah. Uh, peace on earth. Hey, uh, coming up with us in just a minute, Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. He is our uh, our favorite uh, child psychiatrist from Yale University um, School of Medicine. He's going to let us in on some parenting tips about how to be a more compassionate parent, how to not embarrass your children, and maybe really in the, in the meantime, while treating them more effectively, you may be teaching them how to be more emotionally literate. Powerful, powerful tools from uh, probably one of the best trained child psychiatrists around. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every child is different, and so even if you think you know how to deal with one child's emotions, it can take a completely different strategy to deal with another. Uh, So what strategy do you use? Well, no matter what, it should avoid humiliation and embarrassment in any of the parent-child dialogue. And who better to teach us this than our good friend, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's the assistant clinical professor of psychiatry, child psychiatry, at Yale University School of Medicine uh, Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. He returns to the show today to talk about a new parenting model for 2016. Dr. Ninavaji, great to have you back to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure and an honor to to be back with you. I love it, and I love this article that you wrote on Psychology Today about performance, accountability, a new parenting model for 2016. Talk to us about FACE. Um, I I don't know why this hit me so hard about the term FACE. Mm. Talk about that. Well, that term, that word has been used sort of uh, for a long time. And it usually means uh, not embarrassing another person when they've made a mistake and you want to maintain the relationship. Mm -hmm. Usually it's used uh, with adults and used in diplomatic uh, situations. Like saving face. We help people save face. Exactly. And I thought it would be very apropos to remind parents that that is a key concept and a key um, idea to always use when dealing with uh, children because children are ultra-sensitive and children remember. Mm. If they don't remember consciously, they remember emotionally. Yeah. And uh, uh, feeling embarrassed means feeling disrespected, and that can lead to anger, it can lead to upset, and it can lead to feelings of humiliation, which in turn add up to a sense of low self-esteem. So a lot of us as parents, we may be parenting using a little too much embarrassment or humiliation. Um, and you're saying you know, in the end that could adversely affect self-worth, self-esteem. It could, and that kind of uh, connects with ideas of blame and guilt. In general, um, each of us doesn't have to make another person feel guilty by blaming them. Each of us has an intrinsic module deeply within our brain and heart to feel if we're a normal person, a Mm. typical person. We have that built in, a feeling of internal guilt for something that we've done wrong. And it really doesn't have to be endorsed or enhanced by an outside source in a heavy-handed way. It, it, it could, we, each of us could be reminded of it in a sort of mild, light, light-handed, constructive manner. And that's a very good way to do it as a reminder a thou shalt do this and a thou shalt not do this, but not in a heavy-handed, blaming, ultra-guilt-provoking way, hmm. which embarrasses. Because the reason, psychologically, is that that shuts down the child. That makes the child feel fearful, 
upset, angry, and not opened and and available to learn and engage and have a dialogue to learn a better way of performing. Mm. So really, you're, it's about – I don't need to have an e- external uh, kind of guilt or shame focus. It's, they're going to do it naturally if they're just informed. The, the normal typical child, which is the, the, the bulk of all children, will. That's yeah. right. Okay. Okay. So talk about how this turns into development then. So what should my pattern of trying to develop better habits, better, you know, skills, tools with my children, how should I go about doing it? Well, uh, in that whole series on psychology today, um, on parenting, I've always said, and in the book that I wrote on biomental child development, I've always said that for me, uh, the three big pillars of parenting are nurturance, discipline, and living example. So those are the strategic modes, tools, strategies to use. And actually, I really think living example, which sometimes is called modeling, uh, is the, the strongest. And that's how parents can convey this information in the most uh, real-life way in real time by living example, by modeling appropriate behavior, appropriate emotions. I call that kind of uh, interaction, that kind of dialogue, which is both uh, that that kind of communication, which is uh, uh, verbally expressive and also uh, non-verbally expressive. I call it transactional sensitivity. Being acutely sensitive to where you are as a parent uh, emotionally, where your child is at emotionally, and then engaging with your child, both verbally and non-verbally, but many times the engagement is non-verbal, you know, doing something together. And parents have to be – so this takes it, I think, to a whole new level. This really is do what I'm doing, don't do what I say to do. Uh, only right, yeah, right. Hopefully, the saying reinforces the doing. Right. Hopefully, and but that would then demand that the parent also be modeling, nurturing behavior, and modeling discipline. That's exactly right. Consistency. Yeah. Well, that's it the hard part, lot. right there, Frank. <laughs> that's the rub. That's the rub. That's the rub. <laughs> Is because right. um, as a, as a psychiatrist. It really is so much of this is our parenting. It's I mean, we we like to kind of blow it off to genetics or genes or, you know, anxiety or depression or a diagnosis, but in the end too, so much of this is even how we just parent around all of these other things. Mhm. That's what uh, used to be called the facilitating environment. So it can facilitate either quote unquote goodness or badness. Mm. Uh optimal a constructive adaptive development or maladaptive development. Oh man. And it's real. It's totally real. And, and again, I guess that that makes it, it we have to choose to be good parents. We have to choose to get in and be intentional, it sounds like. As adults, that's it. Choose life, choose mm-hmm. goodness, choose adaptation to survive, right? 
And part of this, too, gets into how we create healthier children in regards to their emotions, with regards to their emotions. Because we, our goal, it seems like developmentally, is to make – is to help facilitate emotional literacy for our children. That's right. That's right. Um, we, we can't just assume that um, children nowadays especially are, gonna, are going to know what emotions are and how to label them because too much is going on in the environment because of electronics and all the devices that are going on and all the stimuli through uh, screen media. <clears throat> And it's all very chaotic. It's tremendously chaotic, and it's very mixed up. A lot of mixed messages going on. And uh, what's called political correctness has blurred all sorts of boundaries between uh, what's right, wrong, good, bad, what we should say, what we should not say, what we can say, what we can't say. So it's very difficult for a child to make sense out of <clears throat> what they're feeling inside, what truly is going on, how to label it, and how to, how to position it in their lives, internally, in their family, and then when they leave the house, in terms of the social situation and context, they find themselves, like in school, and then when they do watch the, the larger uh, social situation, for instance, on television, to sort of see how that fits mm. consonantly or dissonantly with what's going on. Well, I've, I've even seen that with some of the political talk and discussion where my younger children will see a comment made by one of the candidates and think, that seems like bullying, Dad. We learned that as bullying. <laughs> And um, and then I'm so now I'm having a conversation of if a political candidate is bullying another, because he says to me that feels like bullying, and I, I just open up a really interesting conversation with my kids. Well, I think that's the way to do it, not to make an, not to come to an immediate conclusion, but to examine the performance yeah. and to uh, pose questions. Say, well, let's look at what's going on. And let's try to define what is bullying, what isn't bullying, and see if bullying is occurring, how it's occurring, what level of bullying it is, how the two people involved in the situation are responding. So I, I use – let me make sure I get this straight, Frank. I use, um, I use their performance that I'm seeing mm. – and we try to just kind of um, – then I bring my child in and we talk about the performance. Mm. I don't have to talk about – if they were the one that didn't perform quite right, I don't have to beat them up. I can just take their performance and set it aside and we talk about it as if it's like a third entity. Exactly right. Okay. The performance. The performance. Yeah. Because there's uh, more bang for the buck when you look at the performance and uh, – formulate questions about the performance, hmm. because then that has a halo effect, and children will look at their own performance, and it opens up a whole myriad of questions in their minds about how they're behaving and how others are behaving around them, huh. rather than simply coming to, 
a closed-ended uh, conclusion. Good, yeah. bad, right, wrong, good, bad, right, wrong. Right. And if I guess I'm normally we would say, oh, don't do don't hit your brother. That's stupid. You and then we we beat them up for hitting their brother. Yeah. You're saying separate the the performance of hitting your brother and and then talk about it with them as if as 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 a performance, as an act and why right. we can do it. And but ask the questions to them. Let them just let them explore it. Exactly. Right. Exploring the behavior. Mm. Right. 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 Because that opens up the possibility that there that there are options or that there were options. And why would somebody use hitting rather than shaking hands, rather than running together, rather than playing a game, Mm. rather than doing some other activity? I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, right? But this is, I guess, where the discipline comes in, right, Frank? Because I, I might instead just react to the moment. Yeah, react. And then all of a sudden my kid isn't learning about performance adjustment. He's learning about personality adjustment. Like I'm beating up his, I'm beating up his psyche. Well, that's where – when you use that word react, that's where emotions come in and emotional literacy. <clears throat> it's learning – how to modulate our own emotions so that they don't pop out impulsively mm. and how that we can feel them. And as we start feeling the, the heat and the fire of those emotions, pause, pause, think, understand that we are feeling that heat and not let it just spout out, but sort of temper it, attenuate it and maybe transform it into something kind of suitable to the situation, constructive and adaptive to the situation. And, and you can be honest with your kid. Like, okay, dad's just counting to 10 right now because dad's mad about what's going on and I want to control that better. That's a living example yeah. of impulse, impulse control. And again, I'm finally, I'm modeling for You're my modeling, kids. yeah. Okay, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, one of our uh, favorite uh, parenting experts and child psychiatrist uh, from Yale University. You can't get better than that, but he has so many great insights. Um, if you go to Psychology Today, you can, you can find a bunch of articles from him, and uh, we're grateful to have him back. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about how we parent – Uh, and model and teach um, better emotional management by focusing on performance. Um, Powerful stuff, folks, and emotional literacy. It's all up next. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's the Assistant Clinical Professor of Child Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. Also uh, is there at the Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, really, folks, to get, uh, to get Dr. Ninavaji on the line with us, truly an honor. Go check out um, his writings that you can find at... Um, I guess his non-academic writings. If you go to Psychology Today, just wonderful articles. And the neat thing about Dr. Ninavaji is he 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 talks 
he gives you everything you need. Like there, his a normal article might be three pages. He'll give you six, but it's deep, and it's uh, I think it's such important stuff. So, Doctor Frank Ninavaji, welcome back. Right. Keep writing. Thank you. You got to keep writing, my friend. And you and the books. What's your latest book out, Frank? Well, the book on uh, biomental child development, perspectives on psychology and parenting, is kind of the book. That's the book. That's it the has book. Everything in it. So and, far. Well, so far you've put it all together. Um, tried. Talk a, talk a little bit about the emotional side of of our children and their motivation. Um, one of the reasons why I love emotional intelligence is because it really is a core. It's a key understanding around how to motivate your children and how to motivate people. Talk about human motivation. What am I supposed to do with my kids that just aren't motivated to do something? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> when kids aren't motivated, <clears throat> um, it's always um, sort of complex figuring out why someone, especially a child, isn't motivated. Ordinarily, a child won't know why they're not motivated if you ask them. Mm. If you do press the matter, they'll say, I'm bored. And uh, <clears throat> that's kind of always a frequent response. And boredom uh, on one level can mean uh, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in what you're presenting to me in the environment. What, I'm not interested in the opportunities that are available to me that you, as the adult, are structuring my environment with. So you have to look at what the opportunities are in that child's environment that the child is experiencing as boring and not interesting. <clears throat> now, ordinarily, um, those have to do with uh, academics, yeah. have to do with reading, writing, doing homework, doing uh, chores that they regard as boring, like cleaning their rooms <clears throat> or doing yard work. So we know as adults uh, that uh, those are critical and fundamental necessities. So I guess the idea is to spruce them up. We have to spruce them up to make them as... Uh, and I guess I put that in the in the article as glaringly exciting mm -hmm. and interesting as we can, <laughs> which means we have to use inspiration and we have to use creativity and also some of those um, psychological strategies <clears throat> that have been used in the past in psychology, which means pairing them up with more um, desirable activities that the child or adolescent uh, uh, seems to really, really, really want. Like a cell phone. If they want their cell phone, do we pair that up with, great, we need the room cleaned? You can. That seems, is that healthy? I mean, yeah, I wonder. If it's healthy, right, right. Yeah. Or a food, mm -hmm. or going out to a certain restaurant, or um, getting a certain treat if it's a younger child. Yeah. You, know, you have to pair it up with something that they regard yeah. as desirable, um, but within reason. You can't be unreasonable. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it can't be maladaptive or unhealthy. So if you pair it up 
and have them do the less preferred activity first, and then right away in close proximity, the uh, preferred activity or reward, then it usually works. And yeah, and I guess the key to that too is the motivation. You have to go, you have to get into your child to find out what motivates them. Exactly right. You really have to be sensitive and aware of what they feel is salient, important, relevant, meaningful to them at that stage of their development, because mm-hmm. it does change. What What do you mean by biomental? In your book, Biomental Child Development, mm. uh, we all want to develop our children, but you, you use the word biomental, which I, to me is a new word. I, explain that to us. It is a new word. I coined that Did you term. coin it? You made it up. I made it up. Uh, so what does it, it mean? Because... I mean, instead of just developmental, biomental. Because in my training at Yale, <clears throat> in, uh, uh, infant, when I trained in the early 70s, Yale was the, the place to train. And uh, they did a lot of work on infant development at that time. And early on, I was thinking of becoming uh, an infant psychiatrist. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That uh, field was emerging. Then it sort of faded out, and uh, things sort of crystallized around child psychiatry and then child and adolescent psychiatry. But in order to... um, uh, train in in infant psychiatry, we had to uh, see infants and very, very young children from maybe a month old to six years old, and we had to test them. We had to do what was called infant testing. Wow. And we had to use all the old-fashioned physical tests. They call them developmental tests that the, that the um, psychologists <clears throat> from the last hundred years devised the Bailey scales and uh, uh, Stanford-Binet scales. Those were the original IQ scales, hmm. tests. And now everything has been replaced with, uh, you know, Wexler tests and various other neuropsychological tests. <clears throat> and those early tests were like Montessori um, games and blocks. It was a very physical thing. So you had cubes and squares and uh, diamonds, and you had to have the child draw. And so it was a very physical thing because the child was very physical. Right. The mind was embedded in the body. The body was embedded in the mind very, very early on, for at least the first three years of life. And that impressed me. But nobody really talked about it. We thought we were just sort of working with the infant or the uh, nursery school child or the kindergarten child. So throughout the years, even when I was dealing with eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, even when I was dealing with adolescents, I saw that they are so engrossed in their physical bodies, but yet at the same time, they are mental, emotional, thinking beings that have a, a heart, a spiritual life. So I thought, let me talk about development from that point of view, but as a psychiatrist, I couldn't talk about you know, t- 
pointedly the spiritual life. Right. So I thought I would... Uh, <clears throat> in psychiatry, there was the phrase biopsychosocial. And I thought, I didn't want to bring in that because that was brought in already for, for the last 30, 40 years. I want to concentrate on the individual because people forget about the individual. And I want to concentrate on the individual child and the individual child's dignity as a person in and of him, herself. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, placed in society, but let's concentrate on the individual. So I coined the term biomental, hmm. that that unit is both biological and psychological, all rolled up into one. Because sometimes as a parent, we might just think of it as bio, biological, a body, and when we're disciplining it, you're making the point that it's not just a body, it's a being, it's, it's an entity, being. and it has sensitivities and memories and, and, and values, and it hurts. And so you must honor that or you will, lose, you will crush face. I don't know what you call from it. Day, exactly, from day one. Hmm. In the beginning, early on in child psychiatry, <clears throat> many, many psychiatrists did not regard the infant as a psychological entity, they thought it was, and this was a very sort of uh, hurtful expression that they would use, but, and I didn't like it very much, they thought it was just uh, <clears throat> a pulsating neurophysiologic bundle oh, of flesh and blood. Yeah. And I never liked that. No. Because I knew from day one that was a human being. Even though that little human being, that little infant, couldn't fully see or talk or hear or respond or wasn't really coordinated, it was a life. It was a human life mm. in development. In st they call it in statu nascendi, in the state of being born, growing, unfolding. <clears throat> That's why I, I use that phrase biomental. I love that. And to me, it does invoke that spiritual power, that potential spiritual side it's that, that has, it has to be there. honored, right? That's the, the thou. The, the, reverence the, for yeah. the infant, for the baby, for the child, mm. for the uh, middle childhood uh, little person, for the uh, adolescent Man, powerful. Very powerful. Frank, as, as we wrap up, um, what would you say as a parent that's maybe made mistakes, maybe honoring that, the biomental state of their children, um, and maybe seen them more as a pulsating bio than a powerful spiritual side mm -hmm. as well? How do, we, uh, how do we recover from that? I would say the first thing would be <clears throat> acknowledge the mistakes, Second thing would be to say, I am glad I made those mistakes. I am fortunate I made those mistakes because those are lessons I need to learn. Yeah. I need to learn from. Number three would be figure out what those mistakes were and what the various other options could have been and then refine your behaviors with the more adaptive and um, develop biomental development enhancing behaviors and responses. So the, the refining is the development. That means you're developing. 
you're getting better. You're getting better, right. We're always learning if we're sensitive to learning right. and, and the fact that we need to learn. We need to improve continuously. Mm. And it's an adventure. Yeah, and a, and a process. And the parents are going through the process just as much as the children are. Mm-hmm. They're just further down the road. They're just supposedly down the road. Good stuff. Well, Frank, we appreciate you again. I think it's the work you do is amazing. The book go go look up for the book Biomental Child Development: Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting. And uh, Frank, we'll have you back. Everybody, go look up uh, also Psychology Today, and just look up Frank Ninavaji. And uh, you'll have access to a lot of wonderful writings by him. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we'll have you back. Truly honored. And he, I love uh, the, the spiritual side of this too, folks. These, these are beings. These are, they're not just bundles of flesh, right? These are, these are human beings. And in process, right, in development... But we have to honor the bio side and the mental side they're, they're, and the spiritual side. There's a very real powerful, um, you know, a, a being that's growing, that's changing, that's developing. Powerful. That's why the role of parent is should not be taken lightly, folks. Uh, nor should the role of just fellow human being. The, this world is full of people walking around that just need to have you recognize that they're real, that they're there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue this discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, listening uh, to Dr. Ninavaji um, reminds me of one of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber, um, who was uh, a philosopher. And the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923. But it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he, in the book, uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's, there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people. As an I-it, meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I-thou. And a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you. That um, that is is sacred. That's the vow, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a god in your prayer, perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient to people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that eventually our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld. 
which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world are – it's so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object, because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, and I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us? Powerful, powerful stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. Fast, but uh, I think profound. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to hour number three of the show. Uh, and today is a, an interesting day because... A, Don's in the studio, and we're going to pay tribute and learn a little bit more about David Bowie, who who passed away yesterday. Yeah, he did. Liver yeah. cancer. Is that what it was, liver? I never yeah. heard what kind of cancer. There he is. Oh. Although this is kind of a fast version. <laughs> you brought all of his CDs in. Yeah, I brought a few. I, I uh, am a big fan of uh, David Bowie. Are you? What happened? I think he fell. <laughs> I don't know what version this is, but... He uh, fell asleep on I his. think this is the Weird Al version of Ground Control to Major Tom. It says original video, so... Really? This is that, his video. I've never heard this one, so this is pre... Uh, the one that we all know. Huh. You're Because you're a purist. Now, Don, by the way, Don Shaline's not only our boss, and he he makes sure that we sit up straight, we don't yeah, do things the, wrong clean up on the yourself. air. Yeah. But Don's the host of his own uh, show, co-host, well, host, co-host. Yeah, co-host. I'm actually a, a small part of it. I just kind of— You are not. That, you're the voice through well, the garage door. Yeah, yeah. That's a fun show, by the That's way. That's a great yeah. show. If you get a chance to listen to it, it because it, um, it has absolutely no foundation in any kind of <laughs> knowledge or— Wisdom. And no, but it's, you it's just stream of consciousness. But, but you have incredible knowledge because you've been in the radio business I've lived for eighty this years. Business. How many years? Not eighty. Are we counting it, but it's probably forty something. Because you brought in the original Space Oddity CD. I mean, you're bringing I have, this I stuff in. I actually have the vinyl. If we really wanted to get down yeah, to that, you have the vinyl. That's what I was assuming. You have all yeah, the vinyls, scratchy things. But um, you know, it, it, it is kind of interesting. I was I was yesterday at a drink shop before coming in okay. to uh, uh, work. At, at, a pub they call that in every other country, yeah, in every other and state. Here, but in Utah, it's here just they call it the soda non-alcoholic shop. sodas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's a, a 
Utah County thing. <laughs> um, and there was this young girl waiting on me there. And as I got my uh, ca- caffeinated, uh, um, carbonated beverage, um, <laughs> lightly caffeinated and highly dieted, yes. uh, there was um, th- this very young uh, college student, she looked like, yelling to this other girl there, hey, did you hear David Bowie died? Wow, that's so bad. And, you know, these young students that yeah. are talking about this uh, star that really kicked it off in the 60s and, and made it big in the 70s. And, uh, you know, there's not a brand new no. uh, current type of Well, and I grew star. up hearing about him, but I'm ne- I was never in music as much as deeply as you are because yeah, well, you you're in deep. But- and, and- what makes him special? What made well, him different? Just to, to give you a little bit of reference, when, it was about 1972 when I was driving down the road, and on the radio came a song, Ch-Ch-Changes, and yeah. I thought, that sounds kind of like the Beatles, but kind of with a little twist. Totally. That's cool. Who is that? And I found out it was this guy named David Bowie, and um, so I started following from that, got into that album, and then went backwards to Space Oddity and the man who changed the, or the man who sold the world and different things like that. And what I, I guess I don't know. Everybody's got their own takes on on what any kind of a pop star, you know, yeah, how important they play, are, yeah. what what role they play, and 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 I think we tend to take most of them too seriously. Yeah. And, and even they would say you're taking us too yeah. seriously. But the uh, I think for him, he was kind of a pop art star. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, he was of, very eclectic. Uh, yeah, very very much so. Like to really. Uh, uh, change each album would, would be kind of a whole different approach to what his own persona was. Very much into the theatrics. Uh, that that era that he came out was glam rock. Mm-hmm. That was just starting to come in. New York Dolls and all those kind of things were just uh, starting to hit. And it was a combination of art and shock and uh, avant-garde and all those yeah. kinds of things. And <laughs> so along with it just you know, the music he made, uh, it was also what he wore. Uh, He's wearing a dress in The Man Who Sold... Who yeah. sold the world? He's wearing a dress. Looking he looks quite like, demure. He looks like just, a beautiful woman with long yeah, hair and a yeah, dress. Yeah, and, and but David it's David Bowie. Bowie. Yeah, uh, but uh, he, uh, I think, and and part of that is just rock and roll. It's yeah. always kind of like, hey, here's an attitude, and we're gonna we're gonna right. whatever you say uh, is how things should be. We're gonna do the opposite. So. <laughs> uh, Those but, rebels. But I think behind all that, he actually was a very talented musician, singer, and songwriter. He hmm. wrote very interesting songs and push the envelope in, in a lot of those ways. What are some of the more popular ones that we've all heard of? Uh, you, you ch- start, ch- changes we've heard yeah, of. Yeah, Changes, um, Space Oddity. Uh, that was the earlier. He, he went into then uh, uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And, <laughs> uh, and then uh, you, you had things like uh, uh, Let's Dance. It, well, well oh, first Let's of all, Dance, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the 80s kind of was a rebirth of David Bowie. That's right. The, the that's where I had, grew up, and I'm like, oh. Yeah. I see, he was all new to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did have, like, he did a, a, a duet with John Lennon back in the, the later 70s. Um, what was it? He and John Lennon were working on some stuff. Wow. Now it's, it's I'll uh, look, I'll look, fame, I'll find fashion. Um, anyway. But well, those two together, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, in the 80s, when MTV was just hitting, he jumped right into the middle of that and there was there was kind of the remaking of David Bowie that's when he was the thin white duke uh-huh. he was this well-dressed dapper gentleman uh that was almost narrating songs like China Girl and um like say let's let's dance fame. modern love the, the name the David Bowie song was was it fame fame was earlier yeah okay uh but well it was right about that time 
But anyway, uh, so he – and then also about that time, he uh, was in a, a few movies. That I think uh, That's Hollywood right. producers saw the they, – They got the glam. They yeah, saw we could use that. Th- that he had some chops there with, uh, what, the man who fell from Mars? Is that one of them? But also uh, – uh, a big one for many youth that uh, grew up with this and now harken back to it was Labyrinth. Yeah. When he was with a bunch of Muppets having a great time uh, <laughs> uh, being the uh, the antagonist there. But, it's It really is. That's why I wanted you on here because he's, he's, he's iconic, but he's pivotal. There's a lot of songs like that we – like – uh, the the one about the countdown to yeah, Mo- space Oddity. space Oddity. I mean that's like it's become that's part of quintus- our culture yeah now. right you have astronauts you mm-hmm. know singing that well then have- that was in the Walter Mitty movie as well I mean yeah. it's like it's huge it's history well and and even beyond that again taking the traditional and adding just a David Bowie weird twist to it. What do we hear every Christmas? Bing Crosby and David Bowie singing The Little Drummer Boy. That's right. You know, and, That's and again, right. It's, it's like he is the quirky side of all of us but still has some roots in kind of some old traditional stuff that uh, that we can relate to. Man. And his, his real name is David Jones. I know. He's Davy not Jones. The, not one of the monkeys. <laughs> how, well, how disappointing that there's already a Davy <laughs> Jones monkey. There was a Davy Jones already. i got to be a Bowie. What do you think, um, what do you think in the end – are, we, are there more? Are there more David Bowies out there? Well, there are a whole lot of wannabes. Yeah. There's a ton and, of wannabes, but yeah. but, I mean, but actually, he was kind of one of a kind. Yeah, I guess you never know. At, at the time when he first was coming out, I, the, the early days of David Bowie. Even you hear that version of Space Oddity that we were playing. Um, you know, he started out like a lot of musicians, just playing the, the regular type hmm. chops and regular cover songs and things like that. And you yeah. hear him start to evolve. Even the earlier things, like the, the album Hunky Dory that, well, I shouldn't say that. Space Oddity uh, had more normal kind of songs and the straight-ahead rock and roll songs, but he started adding more quirky things as he went. He, 140 million albums sold since 67. Wow. 111 singles, averaging more than two a year during his career. 51 music videos, 25 studio albums. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah, hmm. I would I would uh, encourage people who want to know more about the David Bowie um, mystique or whatever, uh, go deeper into the albums. Listen to some of the cuts you don't hear all the time because it's, it's some good stuff. Don Shalines is named. By the way, Through the Garage Door uh-huh. can be listened to when? Uh, Monday through Saturday at midnight Eastern time. Wow. Or you can download the podcast at BYU Radio. and and we have made that available. Now, for licensing reasons, because we play so much great music. That's true. We kind of fade the music out as we go into it. So, But we give you lots of uh, direction as to what it is. So you can go find it. I think the dialogue is what's fun there because you and Mark are, you know, you guys know a lot. And opinionated in a good way. Yeah, yeah. And and we disagree on a lot of stuff, and that actually is a good thing because and, and there are a lot of people that don't like David Bowie. And that's right. That's a good thing too. Yeah. You know, we all have our taste he, in music. He is what he is. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Don. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Sure. We wanted the pros that uh, that really know. So tribute again to uh, David Bowie. Love him or hate him, he's he's impacted history, uh, at least in the music industry. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking more parenting and uh, with uh, Julie K. Nelson. She's going to give us some insight into some more skills about parenting your children. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Julie K. Nelson from um, the great website, a spoonful of parenting.com. She is a University of Utah, Utah Valley University professor, teacher, extraordinaire. You, yeah, you, I do like the Utes too, but you, you I, do I, like am, the Utes. I am a you're Wolverine. A, you're a Wolverine. <laughs> it's, it's weird to even think of that. Yeah. UVU's, they're, they're a Wolverine. Yeah, they're Wolverines. Do we have Wolverines in Utah? I think we have all kinds of cats because BYU's the Cougars. Cougars. Yeah. Yeah, and then. And I don't Wolverines. know what else. Yeah. It seems wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, you're also the author of uh, Parenting with Spiritual Power and the other one. Uh, let's see. Bring out the plunger. That's right. Keep it real and grab a plunger. Uh, <laughs> 25 tips for surviving parenthood. I love that's that. That's quite a title. That's a big title. It but, is. You know, but it actually, it makes sense. So today you're going to talk to us about New Year's resolutions that we can keep as a parent. Yeah. I think we've all made them, right? What were your resolutions that you've already broken? I, I on didn't this, make on, any on January second. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't make them because sm- I break them. Because <laughs> you're so it's too depressing. Smart, right? What did you make? What resolutions? Ben, ben did you make any? What'd you make? No, I didn't make any. Yeah, Ben well, try, is trying to get not be arrested this year. <laughs> well, yeah. Have you I, been successful in the first twelve days? Well, well because I'm on parole, if I get arrested, like my sentence yeah. is doubled. That's what that ankle bracelet's mm-hmm. on for. Yeah, he's actually got two. That's why they clink when he walks. <laughs> it's not a fashion thing. It's not fashionable at all. We have such good intentions, folks, don't we? And especially as parents, we're like, okay, this year I'm not going to yell at my kids. You know, this yeah. year I'm going to pack healthy lunches. You know, and we, you know, same thing as we do for ourselves. This year I'm going to lose 25 pounds and. Then, you know, by day two, you know, we're packing Twinkies and totally. ding-dongs in their lunches. And I don't see what's wrong with that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Until, yeah. And then we've already yelled at them three times. Right. So we, we make these resolutions, but nobody keeps them. Yeah. But you're saying you here's some you here's can keep. Here's some you can actually keep. I'm giving you permission, parents, to say, look, there are some things I can do, and they're easy, and they're actually good for me, mm. and I can do them. Um, and you, they're easy. Let's say that Yeah, again. they're easy. They're easy because... You know, they're ones that give us permission to be real yeah. rather than being false to ourselves. And I'm not saying that it's okay now to keep yelling at your kids. No. So keep working on those things. But these are things that are doable, that are manageable, that help us to say, I have confidence in my parenting rather than, oh, no, I failed again. I don't want us to have that mentality. Oh, no, I failed again. Yeah, we feel like we're, yeah, we feel like we're not doing a great job, mm-hmm. even when we are. And if you're already in the mindset of, oh, I already failed again, then that puts us in a negative zone, which then just feeds negativity. And then we aren't in an empowered position to do our very best. Right. And then things wear down on us and then we just give up. And so, um, you know, they're like, all right, whatever. Kids just have popcorn for dinner. By the end, <laughs> by the end of the day, we don't care. And these are more of a taking a, a stand of, I, I did this. Yeah. And I can. And I'm, I'm gaining confidence in my parenting. So let's, I like let's, it. let's talk about what we can do then trying to get those pounds off, which work on that if you'd like to. Yeah, these go are there one, too. These are ones you can keep as parents. The first one is that parents do too much for their kids. And that's where they get into a trap of I'm failing because we do too much. We do everything for them. So I, and we're there for them all the time. I'm saying for you, give yourself permission, a resolution to take care of yourself, parents. Mm. You are the center of your universe. They're not the center of yours. If you don't have self-care, then they're going to fall apart because you're falling apart. You've got to. You, you're the only you you've got eventually they're going to leave yeah 
and equally with your marriage. Yeah. Um, if you're not nurturing your marriage first, it's the tree of which the branches grow from the fruit. And so take care of yourself. And if you have a partner, if you have a spouse, take care of that first. So give yourself permission to say, I'm going to go take a nap. Yeah. I'm going to go, whatever it is, I need to leave the house. Um, I need to go on a date with my husband every weekend and give yourself permission to say, it's all right to leave the kids behind. There's some parents that are so ridden by guilt, they don't want to leave their kids right. home. Um, and so they don't take a, a date night with their spouse or go out with other couples or with friends. And I'm not saying, you know, go out there every night. I'm saying once a week, it is healthy for a marriage and or if you're a single parent for yourself to go in self-care so, yeah. and reconnect with it. other people. So, so you know, do what you need to do to take care of yourself and then come back. And whenever I do that, even if I go on a trip, well, you know, once a year I might go on a trip for a week, a retreat or something. And I go, I'm gone for a week. And it's, there's a lot of guilt leaving the kids behind. But I always did that. Why? Why is there so much guilt? Oh. Oh, because it, what if something happens while I'm gone yeah. and I wasn't there for them and it'll be all my fault and, you know, and, <laughs> and they won't know how to love them the way I love them. So, you know, but do it because I come back from those trips and I think, oh, the time away helped me restore oh, yeah. me. And they appreciate me. They're so much more loving when I get back because they realize how much I do. Well, if you give them a really difficult babysitter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Give them a really bad one. Really a Don't Nazi, ever Nazi. leave us with grandma. Yeah. <laughs> She's scary. Yeah, she makes us do our chores. <laughs> and so, you know, come back and you look really great. Oh, yeah. And they love you 10 times more and you love them 10 times more because you've had a time away from each other and everyone needs That's a, a resolution everybody can do. Take yeah. care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Number two, I want you just to be prepared for the unexpected. Um, it will happen. So just know it's going to happen. What happens is when oftentimes we get angry at ourselves or others because we didn't anticipate that something might happen. And so we're angry at the the idea that something changed that wasn't in the plan. That's what anger is all about. It's It's like the surprise of what? So just be prepared that, oh, look, that just happened. There it is. A plate (laughs) plate broke over breakfast. I knew something was going to break. There it is, yeah. It's the note cry of a spilt milk. It's because we know, oh, there it is. The, 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 The milk happened. So rather than angry, just expect, oh, there it is. It happened. And even notice it and even yell it out. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I knew that There's happened. There's the strange anomaly I was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> there you are with those pants on backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's the thing is – there's wonderful things everyday parents to be surprised by. There's the bad stuff like the plate that got broken or the kids that can't don't know how to get dressed or whatever. And there's also the good things. And 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 be able to stop and enjoy both those things. I know it's not wonderful to have a break with plate broken or yeah. whatever, but just go, "Oh, there it is." Well, and what if all of a sudden your kids get up and they clean up the plate and they take care of it and there it is too. So it's there, there's the break and there's the fix. Yeah. And if you don't overreact, then they will take more responsibility because if you overreact and start getting mad at them, then they're going to become defensive. Therefore, they're not going to be able to problem solve and go to the, oh, I guess I should clean that up. So if I just go, oh, there it is, then they're going to be like, oh, yeah, and they probably will clean it up. I love that. And you can help them. So there's also the – you know, I'll tell you a story. One time we were taking a train in Chicago to the airport. My daughter was starting to feel sick and we're going – to you know, get on the uh, in the airport. It was thirty minutes on this train, and she was starting to get sicker and oh, sicker. No. By the time the train pulled into the station, the airport station, she hurled vomit across the aisle, hit us, all of us, sitting on the opposite side, <laughs> all of our bags, in her hair, on the window behind us. I mean, it was projectile. <laughs> Looked like a crime scene. <laughs> yes. And there it was. And all we could oh, do was sit there and go, oh, there it was. 
Here we are going to board, board, pla- board a plane yeah. and we're covered in vomit. I mean, what else do you do but just go, there it is. Oh, I bet they <laughs> loved seeing you get on the plane. <laughs> it, was, it was choice. But here's the thing is you just take a picture yeah. of it, write it down and laugh about it because what else can you do? Oh, yeah. You know, it's not – it's just one of those things that happen or the lovely things, parents, that happen where you look over on the couch and there you see your older son putting his armor on his younger daughter mm. or his younger sister, your younger daughter and think, there's brotherly love. That's cool. Take the time to – that wasn't expected. Or the little notes on your pillow. Mm-hmm. Those are unexpected yeah. things too. But it just happens, folks. And to get angry about it is useless. What if the note is like, can I have $10 for <laughs> – There it is. Sure. Just Oops, say, there it, there it is. There it is. Um, so number three, resolve to be humble and strong enough to admit when we've made a mistake or that we don't know everything. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. We put ourselves up way too high on the pedestal that we have to know it all. And that also brings a lot of stress and tension oh. and uh, – overcommitment of our role as a parent. And so if we just say, you know, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. Or, whoops, I made a mistake. That was my first one today. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> and we, I, I have a parent that does it all the time. She smiles and she goes, that was my first mistake today. <laughs> Irony in that I make yeah, many mistakes. And the totally. kids all know it. The kids all know it. And she always says, my first, because it's always That's her first. That's so great. But they're like, yeah, that was number 10, Mom. And they all count. You know, they're, they're fine, because then they can say, hey, that was my first mistake, too. Yeah. And everyone's okay with the fact that Then it we makes don't mistakes know okay. Yeah. Making a mistake is fine. Yeah, it's when we don't admit it, we have to cover it up, and it's almost like we're being false and, and not and not true to ourselves. Yeah, and not t- teaching our children that it's okay to say, "I don't know something. Let's go find out." Or I made a mistake. Now, how do I fix it? Like an, an apology from a parent going back and apologizing mm-hmm. is it's probably one of the most valuable things the family can see. And teaching kids that process, what you just said. Yeah. Is what the best things to see see parents not being perfect, so they don't have to be perfect, and we can all be real, yeah. and we can all admit out loud that we aren't we're not right, and that I shouldn't have accused you of that. I'm so sorry. Jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm. Kids hate it when you. Did you ever have that happen when you're a kid? Your parents jump to conclusions, yeah. and accuse you of doing something. Oh, you hate that. Well, I didn't because my mom knew it was never me. <laughs> Because I was the angel, yeah, right. but it was my sisters because yeah, right. they were messed yeah, up. Always, always, yeah. I was the angel child that never did anything wrong. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. A gift from God. That's what Matthew means. <laughs> gift from God. I, I totally believe that because you don't have any devilish in your eye right no. now. Mm-mm. No, that's just pink eye. <laughs> hey, let's take a break. We'll come back uh, more with Julie K. Nelson from the website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Go to the website, folks. All of her her past posts, her um, blogs, it's all there, folks. She's she's the real deal. She's the uh, what do we call you? It's the funny the, 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 the mom, bomb mom. mom or the child whisperer. Yeah, you that's said right, the child yeah, whisperer. Yeah, yeah. The child whisperer. <laughs> Stick with us, folks. More with Julie K. Nelson when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you have children, this is the segment for you. Joining us is the child whisperer, the bomb mom, Julie K. Nelson's her name. And uh, Julie is uh, has a master's degree in marriage, family, and human development. She teaches classes at uh, Utah Valley University um, in marriage and in relationships. She's also uh, been featured on the Wall Street Journal, Parents.com, Family Share, you, you name it. 
She's been there. And today she's teaching us about five New Year's resolutions that parents can keep. They're very simple. Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. We've covered. Be prepared for the unexpected when you notice it. Oh, there it is. There's it the is. unexpected. Mm-hmm. Good and bad. Mm-hmm. And be humble enough, strong enough to admit you've made a mistake. Yeah. So uh, being a parent is the hardest thing in the world, and we all get it wrong sometimes. So I resolve to be a good parent. Being a good parent is best for most days instead of pretending or expecting to be perfect. You, Let you, yourselves be yeah. real and not false. Blow up the perfection, mm-hmm. the parent perfection thing. Be the best parent you are for your own kids, and that's good enough. And you're not anyone else's parent, so don't be false to your family. I always like to make an argument with my children. I could be worse. <laughs> That I mean, really, you're about a minute away from me really going off. I'm, I could be a lot worse. Yeah. So, uh, so this is good. I love this. So these are three things, parents, you can do. Take care of yourself. Be prepared. Oh, there it is. It happened. And resolve to be humble and admit when you made mistakes. How hmm. We can all do that. It's easy. Number four is I resolve to tell my children every day that they are smart and they're beautiful and kind and that they can do anything they want in life. I can say that to my kids. Yeah. But doesn't that build a monster? No. You see, we, that's the thing. This just reinforces – and you're not saying – you're not talking about their attributes. Like I mean, you're not talking about their, their, their beautiful skin mm-hmm. and their incredibly you know, great touchdown pass. You're talking about they're smart, mm-hmm. they're kind, mm-hmm. these other attributes. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. And whatever beauty they have, that's their beauty. You can hold – yeah, you mm-hmm. can point that out. Yeah. Um, and so look in the mirror and tell yourselves the same thing, parents, every morning that you are smart and you are beautiful and kind and you can do anything you want. Just give positive messages. That's all it is. It's very easy and it's something you can keep. And it's something that we should all be saying to each other um, rather than criticizing, rather than comparing. Um, that's hard to do, to sit to, to, and pick at somebody and pick at ourselves. It just it brings us all down. Oh, yeah. And we, it's easy to keep a resolution of saying, I'm going to, during dinner time, when we sit down at the table, I'm going to give one compliment to each person at the table. That is easy to do. Or just one time a day, I'm going to at least say one positive thing I've hmm. noticed about, about each kid. About each kid and my, and my spouse. I can do that. That is not hard. And then I'm going to say the same things to myself. I'm going to say something to myself about what I love about myself each day. That's great. Um, really build people up. Have Be an example of self-respect rather than health, self-loathing and how to criticize and compare. Our children hear too often our, us comparing ourselves to other people, the neighbors, yeah. other parents, them with other kids. Um, so this your resolve, parents, and every year to remember that your body is amazing your spirit is strong. You have those attributes that are a great gift from God, and you'll take these throughout life. And tell your kids what a gift they are to each other and to you. That's huge because then you're building the team kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And, and we need each other. Life's tough. Mm-hmm. But it, I guess it's, too, what you choose to see. If you only choose to see what they did wrong, mm-hmm. then that's all they hear. Mm-hmm. Why don't you pick your shoes up? Your shoes don't belong there. Turn the TV off. Do your homework yeah. instead of, man, I really appreciate you – Whatever, cleaning up after you ate your lunch. Yeah, your... and if parents are really want to take this to a science, um, you know, Gottman says eight to one. You got to do positives, right? Yeah. Or sometimes even they say, say ten to one, but at least minimum five to one positive to negatives. Because what happens is, is what they find in, in research is that if you say one negative, it erases the five positives. Right. Right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, five to one. Yeah. Yeah, and so if you want to actually be in the positive, you need to do eight. Right. You need to get ahead of the game. Ahead of the game, rather than neutralize it. Yeah, you can't say a positive. Positive and then apolo- I mean a negative and then apologize. Mm-hmm. You're already in the hole so deep. <laughs> you need to have a, an abundance 
of five, ten. Yeah. So you're you're building a bank account. Yeah. And then if you do need to say something negative or criticize someone, or if you you know lose it, you know, and we all do, parents. It's okay to lose it once in a while. It's just the one. Mm-hmm. But you've already said the eight to ten positives, and so the kids will not, you know, have the, be affected negatively. That's right. Um, they'll be like, all right, you know, I still know she loves me because her, you've padded her or him with so many of the other positives. And if you've done the other things you're talking about, like if I've taken care of myself, I'll have more strength inside of me to handle this. Or if I understand that I've got to be humble enough to admit my mistake, you can make a mistake, but you're going to have to admit it. Mm -hmm. So just know, I mean, it's easier to keep making mistakes when you know you're never going to admit it. Mm -hmm. But if I know that I'm, and I'm committed to admitting my mistakes, make it and come back later and apologize. That's right. And then just be prepared, like we said, for the unexpected because it's going to happen. And then it usually usually involves bodily fluids. Always. Always. Even when they're older and you're not like diapering them, you're still cleaning their bathroom or you're still uh-huh. wondering, why can't you hit the toilet? <laughs> You've got a lot of boys. I've got five boys. Yeah, you know about that. But I think my kids all have bad eyesight. Yeah. Because something's wrong. You need to paint a target on your toilet seat. <laughs> I totally seat. do. No, they hit the seat. That's the problem. <laughs> it's oh, the toilet it's the, they can't it's the, hit. It's the water. Yeah. you got to put the Cheerios in there and say aim. Oh, my heavens. Hit Seriously. The, I know, but the these Cheerios. kids are old now. Yeah. I just need urinals. Right. We need to put some urinals in. Hey, um, last one is count your blessings every yeah. day. Every day. That is such an, a resolution we can keep. At the end of the day, I like to just kind of have a moment of meditation and then go through my day and say, what blessings did I see today? What hmm. what miraculous things, small things did I see that happened that were just little, you know, touches of, of goodness, of grace? And if I can just wrap it up at the end of the day or even in the middle of the day if you want to, folks, just have a moment of meditation, five minutes at your desk, at your office, and then just say, what good things are happening today? And it could be non-related parenting or it could be parenting as well. What happened this morning that I can say that was a good thing. If we just can kind of start acquiring a, 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 a ability to see the good mm. um, and the blessings in life and, and the hand of, of grace in your life and count your blessings. Some parents even take it a little farther because they, they really struggle with this and they keep a gratitude journal. Yeah, Maybe at the side of their desk every day or at their home by their bed. And they start every day just, you know, put a little, you know, the date today and things I was grateful for. And that's something we can do that's so easy, but just kind of puts us in a place of happiness. Mm-hmm. And the research, again, you know about the research yeah. of this. Tell us about the research so, with gratitude. So positive, uh, so it's basically the ability to see the good enables you, A, to see more good, but then it enables you to express more good. And actually, I like to do this with my clients where they start making a list of everything that's good. Then they can use that list going forward. Uh, so I have couples that find three things a day that make that made them feel loved. And then that's three a day times seven days. That's 21 entries a week times six weeks I make them do it. Mm-hmm. So that's 180-something things that are good, and I don't allow them to repeat. Wow. So now they have a blueprint of what they can do going forward. So I would even take this to your kids and sit them down and say, you know what? One thing I'm really grateful for and then tell your child what you saw that you're grateful for mm-hmm. and tie it down with your child. Mm-hmm. I really am grateful that you took your your brother under your wing and helped him learn to do a layup. Yeah. That was a really cool brotherly thing to do. And what we focus on uh, – uh, scientists will show that uh, what we focus on, we get. 
Yeah, it grows. And so it grows it. And so whatever I reinforce in a child or any other yeah. human being, they will most likely respond to. Mm-hmm. So if I'm saying that out loud, uh, if, even if I'm just putting on paper, I'm responding to the positivity in the universe. That's right. And, therefore, and you're going to attract I'm opening, more of it. I'm, I'm attracting more positivity and I'm opening myself up to see more positivity. Yeah, why, would you, why would you get more if you don't ever see it? Right. And I see that. That's negative interpretation with couples where they do it so much that I don't even see the positive in you. I only see – the negative things that I need to watch out for. Oh, there it is again. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, if I start annotating and writing down and then telling my partner what I love, mm-hmm. I, odds are she'll do more of it. Well, and there's no guesswork there because, see, you know, like the love languages, I don't know exactly if yeah. you don't tell me what it is that makes you feel loved. And so if, if I tell my partner, really, it's when you do those notes to me rather than the, you know, whatever it is, when you do flowers or this is what really makes me feel loved. So if we do that with our children as well and say, I really love it when you do this and they realize this is what expresses love that means yeah. a lot to mom oh. and to each other. I also have kids. We, we sit around um, once in a while, not often, but we talk as a family and say, what do we love about each other? No, I love that. And they can, the siblings can hear about what they love about each other. And you can even make a list where they pass it around. You put the child's name at the top and then everyone writes down what they love about that person. Mm. That is something they will That's keep, money. keep, 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 keep That's right. for the rest of their life. Well, and then that feeling of goodwill, it's there and mm-hmm. self-esteem. I'm loved by my family. Mm-hmm. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. We, uh, we got about 30 seconds. What would you say? Okay, so these are five resolutions we can get started on. What's, what would you say is the one thing we as parents need to do to just believe in ourselves? We, we seem to have doubt yeah. that we're very good. Mm-hmm. Is there one thing, and it might be one of these. I would say number five, sit down and say what it is that you can say that happened good today. Because we are so consumed in criticism and negativity and negative thought about ourselves and others and comparing. That is, I think, the worst thing that parents do, the number oh. one worst thing. So if you can just get that out of your mind, you know, kind of move it off the stage of your mind and now say, I'm only going to occupy the stage of my mind with one positive thought, and that is what good thing did I do today mm. or good interaction did I have or some blessing that came to my life today and then occupy the stage of your mind with that. Push the negative out and and just start with the positive, that one positive thought, and hang on to it. And then it might become two, and then oh, yeah. you're going to grow up more. That's where to start, parents, right Money. there. Money. That one great blessing that I could see, even if it might be small, start with that. Start with what you got mm-hmm. and what's already working. Yeah, uh, right. Julie K. Nelson's her name. She's the bomb mom, the mom bomb, <laughs> and the child whisperer. Julie, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Matt. Awesome stuff. Go to her website, a spoonful of parenting. Check out her books, Parenting with Spiritual Power, and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger. Awesome tools uh, as a parent. We'll take a break, folks. Come back uh, to two of our biggest parenting issues, uh, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. We'll find out how they're doing and uh, you know, see what's going on with the BYU-Utah game. It's a fiasco. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're human. And uh, we're dancers. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. I like the song. I like the Isn't killers. this great? You like the killers. Brandon Flowers is the perfect way to start this day. Hurrah, we dancer. What does that even mean? Don't I, I have no idea. The sun is shining. My mustache is flapping. Yep. How's the stash? Healthy. 
vibrant. Wealthy and wise. Not much has changed since yesterday. Whiskers. <laughs> no, no. A kitten came over and licked my lip and it wiped away half of it. So that was disappointing. <laughs> so apparently you're using mascara to, to grow this thing? No. No, apparently not. Hey, um, I don't know if you guys have... Have you guys ever heard of Larry Kriskoviak? <laughs> Who? <laughs> University of Utah what head is coach. Chris Koviak. Uh, Chris Koviak, it's he's a basketball coach at the University of Utah. Let's see. S- said a few things recently about a rivalry between s- two teams. Mm, I thought it was a rivalry. A rivalry? A wascally rivalry. Hey, uh, wh- what do you think? He came out, had a little uh, presser. I think he threw water on the grease fire, Matt. I think, I think the whole house is on fire now. <laughs> Yeah, that got crazy. I mean, it just he kept he, getting worse and worse yeah. and worse. The more the more he talked, the more it, problematic it became. It seemed like. Who are we talking about? Uh, Larry oh. Kroskoviak. I thought you were talking about. Yeah, one, Jeremy and I kind of went went nuts yesterday when this all broke at about ten fifteen, and he was saying things like, "Well, I just didn't think that talking with Dave Rose was to try and cool things down was a realistic option." Right. He didn't even try. Try. Right. Yeah. You got to try. <coughs> and he. He he meant no harm. He means no. I'm not. I don't mean any ill will. But we're not even in the same league. <laughs> it's you know what when the university president Kevin J. Worthen yeah. and the athletic director Tom Homel both release official statements citing their disappointment. You know something's up, man. Mm-hmm. Like and for Tom to say it's bigger than any individual involved. The rivalry is. The rivalry. I thought that was uh, was well said, well yeah. stated. Yeah. And Chris Koviak said that, hey, look, if it needs to be on me, like if I need to take the fall for this rivalry ending, then so be it. He doesn't care. Uh, too late. He right. doesn't care. Yeah, it's on him now. And he doesn't care. No, which right. Which is what makes it weird. Well, and it's, but then he says he cares, but if you cared, you would just, you know, call the other coach and say, look, we really got to get our hands around this. I made this comparison on the show yesterday. Larry Kraskoviak in this situation with Dave Rose is the girl that you date who is upset about a bunch of things, but she never says anything. Yes. She's super annoyed. Ugh. She never says anything. And then it festers and yes. boils inside until all of a sudden the she frustration overfloweth. Oh, okay. And she calls you and breaks up with you in a message or over a text message. With no explanation. And then when you try and say, huh? I'm confused. I thought things were good. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Like that, that is this situation to me. She won't even try. Or I shouldn't say she. I'm speaking still in yeah, I metaphors. No, no, she's fine. <laughs> he didn't even try. They, they, used to be, they used to be such a cute couple. No complaints while the dating was happening. Right. Except... One-sided, festering inside. I mean, sure, there was a punch thrown. If you have a problem with it initially, <laughs> talk about it. You're a marriage counselor, yeah. Matt. See, this breaks down Bring the metaphor. Your concerns, <laughs> man. No, but it's right. You got to talk. And if, if really, if if he, I mean, Majerus, Majerus would have called, wouldn't he? No, the, the rivalry mattered. Majerus would just understood that it's a rivalry and he wouldn't things have done Oh, that's it, yeah. But, but yeah. if he was worried they about They were obligated punching. to play in conference, so it was never in question. That's true. That's true. See, that but was you, back because they were in the same Jim air Boylan quote league. Jim had a conversation with Dave Rose. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, it, and again, it just seems like the more that the more that Coach Kraskoviak talks, the more trouble, the deeper the hole gets. Keep on digging, for, keep on digging. For a school that is perceived as being holier than thou quite a bit, it's ironic that the perceived we're richer than thou school has played this card against BYU. Yeah. We are in a better position than thou. Right. I, I, I don't well, know. Yes, but that doesn't mean we can be disrespectful and it, and give up some weird reason for why the game is taking a break. Mm-hmm. They've never had a conversation about that subject. I don't know how you reconvene. Like, how do you come back from the break? Like, how does that girl that broke up with you? Pressure from donors. Well, but even but let's say all the pressure is there. But then we come back. It just seems like if it's, what you were afraid of worse. is a yeah, it's going to be a yes, brawl. It's going He's, to be worse. He, if he wanted, now we're talking to, about an arranged marriage. <laughs> if, if you want toxic <laughs> and venomous, which are the words and adjectives that they use to describe the rivalry, you've made it even worse. You've dipped this thing in acid. Mm. Wow. Now it's going to be. It's going to be poisonous. It's. Gonna, can you imagine the next time Utah comes into the Marriott Center? It's going to be crazy. Oh. Yeah, that's and maybe you know maybe what we ought to do is just get another girlfriend. You know, no, that's the thing. You want that one? I understand. Yeah, Yeah. Steve. Steve Young made the analogy like, "Oh, we were brothers for a long time, and then when Utah went to the Pac-12, all of a sudden we didn't fight the same battles anymore, and now Utah hasn't, you know, the stayed in line with us. Now we're not." Brothers, the relationship so per- playing football, is perfectly summed up by the U two song "With or Without You." Mm. Did you want to sing that? No, I don't today. I'm angry. Oh man, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm really not angry. I shouldn't have opened this up. <laughs> you guys, you guys weren't going to cover this on your show, were you? We are going to talk about the new angle of this, and that is what President Worthen at BYU said, and President Pershing at the University of Utah, and Tom Holmo, the athletics director at BYU what all of their comments mean. And Steve Young joined us last Friday, and he said some very interesting things about BYU taking the onus on themselves and cleaning up their act so there is no reason for Utah to not Mm. play the game. There you go. That's great. That's Steve Young. That's great. So I I think where they should start is with Jerem's upper lip. That place is a mess. Toxic and venomous. <laughs> no, no offense, but start with the stash, dude. So defense. We're also having the conversation, Matt, of whether or not we should do another BYU Sports Nation countdown to the first BYU football game. Two Ooh. years ago, we instituted the countdown to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Two hundred and thirty-eight days of fantastic awesomeness on the show. <laughs> And then uh, we followed it up with the sequel, Countdown to the Cornhuskers. We brought it back last year. Yeah. Now there is this debate between our fans cross country about whether or not we should do it again. It's and a talking nation. The, we are letting the people decide. Okay, wow. Wow. You are empowering your followers yes. to decide if Even we're going to do Countdown. Yes. yes, we will put out a poll when the show starts. We're, you can vote. Can I, pull, then, can, I pull more, can I do more than once? Can I vote more than once? Sure. Okay. Whatever. If you have multiple Twitter accounts. I got nothing to do today. From Florida, the vote vote may or may not count. Depends (laughs) how that was counted originally. But we're going to let the people decide. And tomorrow we're going to declare, based on that vote, yay or nay, that we do it or not. Jeremy will vote from all of his Twitter accounts, no. 
I have one, so I'll vote from all of them, yes. <laughs> Jerem hates the countdown? I'm not in favor of the countdown in its current form. Okay, okay. In its current form being a countdown over months. Every show <laughs> until yeah. We've done it two years in a row. Just, Why don't you do yeah, a count up? Try that. That's the opposite. Do a count, count up. up. Count up to sataki time. <laughs> countdown to bear down against Arizona. Ooh. That's their that's their fight song theme of the school. Bear down. Count up to buttercup. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. I'm not in your meetings. Hey, um, anything else going on on your show you're going to talk about? Jackson Emery played in the rivalry game a couple of times. In fact, was involved in an altercation where he got slapped in the face by a Utah player. We'll get his thoughts today. (laughs) As well as Jeff Judkins. Who played at Utah. Was an American at Utah. And now is coaching BYU women's basketball. Who better to sound off on it than those guys? And Greg Swaim. Big 12 country guy. Radio personality. On BYU's rumors to the Big 12. When, How realistic is it? When, there's when's the meeting? news the last 15 minutes what? related to that. He'll tell us. Okay, okay. What's the meeting? There's, isn't there a meeting deadline this week? NCA uh, convention. They're going to vote, I believe, tomorrow. Holy cow. We've heard Friday. We've heard Wednesday. I don't, I don't know. What's going That's on. a lot of pressure. But we'll talk to Greg Swaim. He'll give us the uh, latest on okay. the Big 12's proposal in that vote okay. and how it affects BYU. Well, I'm proud. I'm proud to know I know you guys and and your show. It's a dangerous business we're in. God bless we're the here USA. Every day. We ain't scared. Good luck. Uh, have a great show. You're here all day, and uh, keep that lip a flapping. Go team. Go team. Good luck with Coach Chris Koviak. Thank you. Good luck. Have a great show, guys. Uh, Again, BYU Sports Nation, top of the hour, folks, just about four minutes away. Stick with us. They're going to go get waxed and ready. Hey, uh, just some really fun, incredibly great news for all of you that are keeping score. Um, The, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has a new fragrance that's going on sale in Russia. Excellent. Yes, a perfume whose creator says was inspired by the Russian President Vladimir Putin. It will go on sale in Moscow, the leader's number one scent. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> Created by Belarusian, Belarus, Russian-born perfumer Vladislav Rakunov. Uh, by the way, $95 a bottle. That's 6,500 rubles if you're keeping score. Another name for it is Sweaty Flexing Shirtless Man on a Horse. I think he's coming out with a new one called... The smell of orphan tears. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the less popular brand. Yeah. It's a, That's the knockoff. It's, it's a more subtle yeah. scent. That sounds like a sad one. Yeah. Is that, that just seems more sad. Yeah. That's probably why it's not as popular. Huh. How come Vlad gets a perfume, perfume and, you know, I don't think, I don't think any of our guys, I don't think Trump has a perfume, does he? I bet Trump has a perfume. Yeah. You're probably right. Leading number one scent. Yikes. Uh, Anyways, you know, we like to end the show on a hero story. Here we go. An anonymous donor in Park City, Utah, paid $25,000 to cover the rent for an entire apartment complex. How cool is that? An anonymous donor paid the rent for every tenant of an affordable housing complex in Park City just days before Christmas. Residents in the 38-unit New Park Studios were notified that their January rent had been paid. Monthly rent for the entire affordable housing community is only about 20, is about $25,000. Most of the tenants are service industry workers and young adults. 
So instead, you get free rent, folks. You know what that means. More ski time. More ski passes. Anyway, how cool. If you have the money, how cool it is to take care of people like that. That's all this is, is when you're a hero, it doesn't mean you have superhuman strength. It just means you do what you can with what you've got. If you've got more money, give, share, be more charitable. If you've got more time, give your time. If you've got more you know, sensitivity and ability to understand something, share it. That's all we ask you to be, uh, and that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information, to know that the world is good, and uh, we're blessed to be a part of it, and we're here to help each other through it. Tomorrow we'll have more ideas, more tools to help you live on this crazy thing we call Earth. Until tomorrow, folks, take care of each other. Go check out our podcast if you want to on on BYUradio.org or on iTunes or TuneIn. Great stuff there. Or just get the BYU Radio app. It's got everything you need. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take care of each other, and we'll talk again then.